So what? No f fake ZD then? Oh, you still got it wrong, you idiot. No! Uh -oh. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, Martin Grossman, and I'm joined here today by a special guest, Machine Gun Kelly. What is going on, Machine Gun Kelly? How are you doing today? Oh my god. I think my intros are bad sometimes, and then you do something like that. Machine uh, Gun Kelly. Oh, it's crazy. It's our, this is our first podcast guest. Um, it's honestly unbelievable that we've been able to wrap, to rope in such a just phenomenal music recording artist, uh, genre transcendent, really, you know, started in rap, had this beef with Eminem, then came into punk rock and is reviving the genre. Um, you know, how does it feel to single-handedly be the savior of modern music? Um, I'm going to be honest, I didn't come here to talk, Martin. I came here to perform. So um, I'm going to start by just playing one of my songs for you. <laughs> you know my ex, so that makes it all feel complicated, yeah. It all seems complicated. I read those texts that you sent to yours, but I'll never say it. All right, even, even for the joke, I can't listen wow. to that for that long. That was, um, that was, that was insane. That was so good. Um. You guys couldn't see this, obviously, since this is a audio recording and not a visual experience. But I was actually doing exactly what the American fans were doing in the audience down in Nashville against uh, Canada around the 60th or 70th minute during that game, which was uh, turning on the flashlight on my phone and swaying side to side to that impromptu concert we just had, uh, which is just something I don't understand why you would ever do at a soccer game, yet thousands of the American fans Wait. did it. I missed this. They they didn't really do that, did they? <laughs> this is still part Will, of the intro. You're Will, just, it, you're Will it, was, it was terrible. I don't understand what it was. Uh, we're going to get into shortly. This intro is going to be super long. Frankly, folks, we have a lot of things to talk about. Um, we had originally wanted to record last Tuesday where um, I think emotions were a lot rawer from the... Uh, transfer window yeah. but we've had some time to kind of at least for me um emotionally mature and uh you know contemplate my own uh vitriol towards the world and uh i haven't really made any developments so i'm just in the same exact spot and ready to spew that frustration today but we've got a ton of things on our list that we want to talk about i think we can start with what i just mentioned though which is the U.S. men's national team went to El Salvador. Uh, shout out to my homeboy, Anthony, who probably isn't listening to this, but is the only no, pro probably El Salvadoreño yeah. that I know. Um, but went to this Caribbean country that, for all its glory, probably shouldn't stack up to the United States on paper. Um Tied 0-0, and everyone pretty much blamed it on the fact that they had this incredible atmosphere. Yeah, home field advantage. We spent the whole last episode talking about it, right? And they basically talked about how there was like, you know, all these 20, 20 meter high metal caged fences that made it look like they were playing this soccer game inside of an MMA arena. 
like the inside of a ring and how everybody was belting the anthem and how that just took all these players of Champions League European quality and made them into Sunday League wankers. I don't even know what else to say. It was just we- all brought down to the fact that it was like hard to play this game on the road and that it was a young team that, you know, qualifying. They don't know what it's like to actually have something on the line. And, and you know, it was scary that they played fireworks in the stadium. Yeah. And every- well, you, you don't think any of that's true? Because then when the U.S. went to play Canada in Nashville, one of the most patriotic cities in the entire country, what did the atmosphere feel like? Flashlights. You're kidding yeah. me. You're kidding me. You're going to take that game, which was, again, we can dive into this if you want. That game no, was a disaster. Let's, let's yeah. That game was a disaster, an unmitigated disaster. And it was all, for the most part, pinned on to, you know, oh, but it's like a, you know, a point on the road in CONCACAF qualifying is <sighs> a point on the road. And then they went and had a chance to make an atmosphere against an actually like competitive team. Well, okay, whose who's fault and is they, that, though? That's not, and that's they not thought the they were at a Machine Gun Kelly concert. That's that's the fans. That's not the players. You're blaming <sighs> different sets of people for these things, Martin. What's your take I mean, on, I, the recent, I, on the recent games? I mean, I, I think I think both both the things you mentioned are valid. I think, you know, for these very young players who have probably, you know, especially now, these players are getting transferred over to Europe or getting brought up playing best facilities, you know, and stuff in the world. You know, their first game and what a lot of these guys is their first qualification campaign with the team in a, you know, something like El Salvador with cages for the walls of the field. You know, it might be just completely different from anything they've had I mean, before or at least in years. And yeah, I mean, I think for a young, inexperienced, fresh team like the U.S. has, that's a valid excuse. And, you know, at the same time, yeah. I mean, the, the flashlight thing is ridiculous. I and mean, we, we deserve the Super League, let's be honest, if that's the kind of fan we have. But, I mean, that's not the player's fault. And what, what are they going to do about that? That's not on them to get the crowd. Um, so and, I, I, you know, it was, still, it was still a poor performance against Canada. I'm not excusing that. But, I mean, I, I don't think you can, like, say they're being hypocritical or something for having a bad atmosphere at home because that's, that's not on them at all. Yeah, I suppose maybe it's the maybe the hypocrisy is more on the common fan that attributed the loss to something and then failed to replicate what made it so difficult to play in El Salvador in the first place. But I, I, all things considered, I think that this whole conversation, at least in my opinion, is a little bit misplaced because, frankly, I wanted to get that on the table to just put it out into the ether. And that's a pretty counterproductive thing to do when it's, you know, my own country that is playing. But I think... My like genuine philosophy on all of this is that the more that anybody talks about these matches, the more difficult it will get. And that's just fundamentally the piece here that this is all a pressure game that the United States has. And realistically, you know, ought to be this like, you know, favorite mentality going into every single one of these games, every single one yeah, of these games. Uh, they the have, this- have qualifiers at least. Yes. No question. And so I think that it's one of those things where like when they tied El Salvador, the biggest problem wasn't even necessarily that they left points on the table. It was just the fact that it was like, oh, God, here comes the media cycle. And every single podcast I listened to in the last week has talked about it. Uh, I made sure to talk about it first thing on this one. Every single news outlet is talking about things having to do with the national team. They went, they had a so-so performance against Canada. People are going to look down on Canada as like some irrelevant country, but they actually have a pretty solid setup. And I've been talking to a couple people who think they're, they're, they're getting coaching better, staff for sure. Yeah, like it's just one of those things where like 
Well, the biggest problem is not that Mexico has six points in the table and the U.S. have two after two matches. Like, this is a 14-game campaign, I think. Yeah, and, um, you know, historically, Mexico has been the only team that's very difficult to beat in the points tally as well. So, I just um, think that the biggest problem is just, like, now everybody is talking already two games in yeah. about, like, oh, does is does Bearhalter need to be worried about his job? Like, I don't yeah, even want to hear it. I don't even want to hear it. I mean, coming off the back of not even qualifying for the last World Cup, that's going to be a lot worse than normally would. Because, I mean, this this happens to some extent, like, every year with the U.S. They're never perfect through qualifiers. And, you know, people would always be like, oh, we're, we're tying against Guatemala. Like, what are we doing? But, you know, there is generally, in the past at least, a sense that, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Like, they're going to end up qualifying anyway. But now that they actually didn't qualify last time, then, yeah, that pressure might be even worse this cycle around, especially with a new coach. And just kind of, it feels like a new era for the national team. I think that here's my, again, here's my baseline thought. All this stuff is swirling around, all these conversations. Fundamentally, are the results bad? Yes, they're bad. Uh, I don't think it's worth wasting any more oxygen or giving the conversation any more oxygen. Um, because you spent four years, what, building up your expectations? Like, they were bound to be let down at some point, frankly. And honestly, my biggest takeaway from all this is if I'm, burr in the locker room which i'm not so my opinion is irrelevant but if i'm him in the locker room i go in there and i say fellas we are not the favorites anymore in any of these games we are simply not the favorites that that mentality that approach that psychology going into the match of just kind of feeling as though like yeah we should win this is not helping anybody it's not helping the fans it's not helping the locker room and that can be a a powerful thing to kind of have at your back but it can also be um, you know, a lot of pressure. And, you know, usually I, I would think that more experienced players would probably be better with dealing with that expectation. And that is just not something the U.S. has right now. You know, for the younger players, I completely agree, right? That that pressure of being seen as the favorites, especially when they have so little experience, I mean, it can, it can only really hurt. And we're seeing that a little bit already, I think. I think, and, you know, we got a lot of things on our docket for this intro. This segues nicely into one specific thing that, again, just like this, I want to touch upon quickly and without too much dwelling the whole weston mckinney nonsense weston mckinney i think i said that right like for those that are unfamiliar i'm sure plenty are basically weston mckinney is like a 23 year old juventus player who um, he's he's 20 yeah he's 20 i thought he was older than that i think i think i'll look it up real quick maybe we need to do a fact check but he's basically whatever he's a leader in the team he's this he's he's 23 yikes okay Okay, so he's he's yeah. at the point where people are starting to actually look up to him in this team, which is crazy, and is it's a statement as to how young the rest of them are. But he's playing at the top level. He is like always the you know he fights a lot for the for the team. He's technically very gifted, whatever. Good player, very solid player, probably top three player in the in the for the U.S. He gets yeah, news no, no question yeah news gets squeaked out in before the game that he is ineligible for the match against Canada because of a breach of team policy, something like this. It comes out later. He apologizes on Instagram, all this nonsense that happens these days. And I mean, all the rumors swirl that the assumption is that, you know, yeah, he had some girl over or he went to some bachelorette party, whatever the rumors may be. Uh, Lots of people, including some of the U.S. greats like Lennon Donovan being like, this is irreparable. This is inexcusable. All these things. There's lots lots of i mean obviously greg burhalter had to make a decision that was tough based on the fact that this canada game was important for the for the qualifying here here's my uh very brief opinion on all of this um okay i don't care (laughs) 
I, I, I don't care because I see the validity of just about every single way that you could take this. And I think Burhalter, as a coach, you fundamentally need to be able to make lose-lose decisions and, t- and, and difficult choices. And he made a choice and people just need to stick by it. I think, is, is this guy supposed to be a captain figure who has also recently gotten banned by Juventus for partying with Artur and Dybala and whatever? Yes. Is he probably at the point where when people are looking to him in this massive game, you probably shouldn't be getting freaky with a girl the night before a match of this, of this like, you know, level and of this importance with this much historical backing with four years of anticipation coming into this qualify. Yeah, probably. Is he also my age? Yeah. And have I also gone to college with so many people that do so much more degenerate behavior than what he's done, which was probably, again, I understand the COVID protocols. I'm, have tried to be very respectful of those types of things. I wore a mask for the longest time, probably way longer than most people. I didn't even go out of my apartment for the first three, four months of quarantine. Like, we, we, you know, I'm, I've seen following the rules and I've also lived in Midwest and seen people who haven't followed the rules. And there's a mix of that, right? The politics aside, the, you know, I mean, this shouldn't even be a political issue. The, the, the pandemic aside, whether you think it was right that he was with somebody else or not, the fact of the matter is, like we're putting all these expectations on a guy that's 23 frankly lower your expectations everybody uh, he's 20 he's yeah. 23 is he a professional that's making a lot of money yeah uh is he a professional that is like super highly educated on the dangers of uh infectious diseases and uh has strong people in his support system telling him which pr moves are the right ones and wrong ones maybe not i mean like these are things that are like You've got all these people turning on him his entire, oh, is it time? Maybe this is time we got to let him go. It's like, listen, do you know how much idiotic stuff kids of that age do everywhere? You have high expectations because obviously he's carrying the shirt. It's an honor to represent the country, whatever. I I just flip back and forth, back and forth so quickly that at a certain point it becomes this blur of just like, you know what? I just don't care. Berghalter made a decision and I'm going to stand by his decision because I think that was the tough but right thing to do. You, you think there's an argument that Berhalter made the wrong decision on this? I mean, I think I think there's maybe some validity to the to the idea. I don't know. That, I, don't know. I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I, I think for for violating the protocol and you know doing this before the game, he he had to get sent home. I sure. don't think that was ever in question. I I, I would think someone. I'd be really surprised if someone disagreed with that. Um, what I do disagree with is people like Landon Donovan saying this is like irreparable. Because I mean, come on. Like you said, I mean, he's he's twenty, just turned twenty three. He's you know a kid for all intents and purposes still. And yes, he I think he should be held to some kind of higher standards because you know he's he's not treated like the average twenty three year old, right? He's he does have you know a bit more following, a bit more yeah, and, sure. and he has he has more influence over kids, you know. And I know that's not something that footballers necessarily ask for to have this kind of influence on people with these big social media followings, but. You know, it's it's something that you know, even if I can't be too upset with him for getting it wrong, it's something that other people have gotten right in the past. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I can, I think I totally agree with that. Frankly, I the the soccer world is one in which we have seen a pivot towards giving younger and younger and younger people more and more opportunity, which is a double edged yeah. sword in the sense that we have players that are sixteen making their debuts now and kind of being considered veterans by the time they're twenty three. 
right? Where suddenly the onus is placed on this guy to run a team when historically, I mean, you got a guy like Chiellini, who's like 37, who's a leader. And, and there is a bit of a gap there, right? Like one, one guy is, you know, closer to being twice the guy's age than he is being his age. But I think the the thing that I think is just, there's so many different emotions here. One of them is like, yeah, obviously you're a moron. Why would you, could you like, you know, there's this whole thing. I've saw this online too. Like you are a player that went to Europe at a young age. Well, first off was a hotshot athlete in the United States growing up your entire life, went to Germany, spent time in Germany. Now is in Italy, spending time in Italy travels all over the, the continent of Europe for all sorts of international tournaments. Mm-hmm. With all of the nightlife and all of the entertainment and all of the spectacle and all of the, <laughs> if he, you know, whatever, if he's doing, you know, the women that that might bring, yeah, you're going to succumb to just the, the draw of Tennessee. Come oh. on, come uh, it ha- on. It happened to Sam. Why couldn't it happen to Weston McKenney too? Huh? I just think, you know, it's just the type of thing where it's like, yeah, you're, you're kind of stupid, but at the same time, that's not what, it, that's not what it's about, Martin. Uh, What's it about? It's just it's just that he did it. I mean, it doesn't matter where it was or what he was doing. It's just it's just, you know, breaking the rules, being stupid. And like you said, you know, I'm I've I've seen loads of people do much, much worse than this. Just being in the Midwest. And, you know, I I know this is bad, especially in the current times. But like to keep things in perspective, like if we're talking about things that are irreparable for footballers, I mean, I've seen very, very few things that have actually, like, you know, ended a career or even, like, ended a career with the team. That's talking, like, Adam Johnson, stuff like that. You know, you you can do a lot worse than this and be completely fine. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there's probably things we could go after footballers for a little bit more than we go after them for this. But, yeah, you know, I, that'll, I think that- that'll come back in a couple of years once this whole COVID thing isn't an issue anymore, maybe. I think it's a shame that it happened. I think that people shouldn't leap to just defame his character. It's clear that he's the guy that was immature and probably shouldn't be deserving of the captain's band. No. That's 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 a le- that's a decision yeah. that I think is reasonable. I, you know, I agree. Like, yeah. But I think fundamentally, like, is it a health risk? Absolutely. Absolutely. You are threatening, like, the you're jeopardizing a a bubble that people are trying very 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 hard to keep intact if this game gets delayed it interrupts other games down the line you saw what happened with with argentina and brazil all those guys are going to have to fly back to europe and then come back to south america in a couple of weeks whenever they play that game like it it, it could have repercussions that are even worse you know he could have infected other players it could have been a big deal i absolutely wholeheartedly agree with that you when the rules are placed and especially in the locker room you have to stick to the rules the rules are an important thing Without Hammurabi's code, you have nothing. Yeah. So, so again, I, I think Berhalter had no choice. I think he, he made the only decision, which is the right decision. But you know, this I don't think this is something anyone is going to be talking about six months, a year from now. I, 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 I think don't, even don't in see a month, this having any kind of long term effect. Yeah. It's going to be the type of thing that people scapegoat him for if things go awry with qualifying. But frankly, I have faith. So anyway. Yeah. yeah we'll with, with that, let's talk about Tamberham Lankin. Yeah, favorite Italian player. <laughs> he he's getting to be one of my favorite players in Serie A. I uh, I don't know why, but I was just I don't know. I I've never been someone who I guess was that interested in Tammy Abraham when he was at Chelsea, but that really changed when he went to Roma for some reason. I'm just like, oh my god, like I gotta see how this guy does. So I've watched the first three or four Roma games of the season, and I've just been stunned by what I've been seeing. To be honest, um, I mean, I I always 
kind of had pigeonholed Abraham as more of like a pure poacher type of player, which I don't know. I, I feel like that was the narrative around him at Chelsea that, you know, he was just scoring goals, but he maybe didn't have the all around game that they wanted from their striker going forward. Right. I mean, do you hear that same kind of story around him too, when he was in the premier league? Yes. And I think that there was probably some unfair, like, you know, minute allotment that wasn't very generous towards him. But I also do think that with Lukaku coming in, it was right that he made the move. He didn't see a spot for himself and he's too good of a player to be sitting on that bench, just like Donny van de Beek and just like other players that we see in world football that are like, yeah. for one reason or another, they don't get the minutes, but it's like, it's doesn't, it's not a mark on their character or on their ability. Clearly this guy literally went into the, his first couple of games of preseason yeah. and like got assists. Did he not? Or like was brilliant holding up the ball, playing it off. Oh, yeah connecting you tell me more because you saw them in greater detail i mean he's he's just all around for roma he's i mean with a mikatarian and pellegrini especially who play like kind of a two attacking midfielders behind him like this attacking triangle i mean he's been fantastic he's dropping deep holding the play up he's making great through balls he's making these long dribbling runs from midfield i mean he 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 looks like he can do literally anything out there which is crazy because again this is someone who i had a picture of as kind of this one-dimensional player I think what what maybe drew me to this is, you know, England's the league I watch mostly. I, you know, still have some kind of patriotism towards the league, I guess, where I'm like, oh, like I I consider like these English players to be like our players or something, even though I don't live there. And I've I've never really seen this before where an English player uh, at this age goes to another league because, you know, the, the English players I've seen go to other leagues are. There's, there's two types. There's a very, very young, someone like Reese Nelson, Jaden Sancho, famous options, who, you know, went over as youth products and developed and maybe they're going to come back to England now. Jude Bellingham probably is the best example Jude, right Jude now. Jude Bellingham, yeah, e- even better. Um, yeah. You might be interested in Liverpool. Uh, maybe we can talk about that a bit more later. But, I think he'll be interested. Uh, I think every single top yeah. 10 club in the league is going to be vying for his signature in a couple years uh, time. But yeah, carry yeah, on. For sure. we'll, we'll talk more about him in a minute. Um, but the other end of the spectrum, you know, already in Serie A, you have Ashley Young, Chris Smalling, this type of player who's like clearly past it for England, but they're going to see if they can find something somewhere else. All right. And then Tammy Abraham is like just not in either of those groups at all. He's like someone yeah. who should be entering his prime within the next couple of years. And like, I was having a serious think about this. It's like Tammy Abraham is like in the position, like he could be the best foreign English player of all time. And like, how cool is that? How cool would that be? That's an interesting and proposition. He, he seems to, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I just, I, I love the fire he's playing with for Roma. Like every single goal, the team scores, everything he's involved in. I mean, he's, he's celebrating more than anyone else on the field. And this, you know, that's not even something I saw as much at Chelsea. He just seems... I don't know. He's he's you you go watch him play for five minutes and you will immediately be rooting for him right now. He's just he looks like he's having the time of his life out there. He looks like he's going to be one of the best players in the league. And I don't know. Maybe I'm a Tammy Abraham fan now. All it took was getting him out of Chelsea. It was, uh... It's fantastic, frankly, like the, the little snippets oh. that I've seen are awesome. And I think there's. I don't want to be like a, you know, 10 foot pole analyst, but the one thing that I look at when I see that transfer that I think just makes sense to me intuitively is that is, is his coach because his coach, Jose Mourinho has something to prove for himself right now, as if that wasn't the mentality he had throughout his entire career. Mourinho's entire career was basically like 
few obviously he had his successes at Porto and and whatnot beforehand but like his entire career was fueled by the fact that he didn't get the Barcelona job when Pep did and he was more of a proven manager that went I mean even than Pep at the time even before that I mean Mourinho is someone who compared to pretty much every other manager had no no type of success in football as a player I mean he he played like second or third third division or something so that's that's always been a massive part of his personality this kind of underdog mentality trying to prove himself I think he's just like the epitome of the chip on your shoulder. And I think, frankly, for him to take a striker, because you saw the way that he responded to Harry Kane in the documentary with the Amazon documentary for Tottenham, where he looked at him and he was like, I'm going to make you explode like you with me. We are going to make you explode. Like we're going to look at him now. Yeah. And and I mean, it's I don't know how how much better Harry Kane got over the course of his time with Mourinho. But what I will say is that much better. He 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 really. He, I mean, his goal scoring obviously was fantastic before, and that didn't improve very much. But Kane became hmm. a much, much more complete player under Mourinho. I mean, Kane, Kane won the assist title last year. He's, yeah, that's. He's, I mean, that's he, insightful. He drops, he drops back much deeper, and yeah, I think that's. You know, Abraham is probably someone who, you know, is in a similar mold to what Kane was before the Mourinho days. So perhaps, yeah. I just see it as the type of thing where where Mourinho called him up and said, listen, listen, man, you are way more talented than people over there recognize and realize this is a league that's going to allow you to flourish. Here's the system. Here's how I'm going to use you. I'm going to help you explode. And the prospect of Mourinho, a guy who has that chip on his shoulder, ingrained into his psychology, bringing in a striker that was out of favor at a very top club, obviously had a certain amount of success, won very yeah. important titles, but could very well have a chip on his shoulder of his own to prove back like things back home. I mm-hmm. mean, Tammy Abraham right now is what Lukaku was when he went to Inter in some capacity. He yeah. wants to prove oh. his medal. And it's quite that, is a deadly, yeah. that is a deadly combination. When you get a manager that looks that player in the eye and says, you know what? I see. I know what you're going through. Let's do this together. <sighs> yeah. And he that's, is going to be know, one to watch. That's a hard thing to kind of quantify for us as players. But again, go go watch a few minutes of tape Tammy Abraham and you you will get drawn in, you know. And if you if you're still someone who thinks that Mourinho is just a boring defensive coach, go go watch five minutes of Roma, too. And it's just it's not, you know, you can play defensively without being boring. It's uh, it's they're a lot of fun. You know, I, I've always really enjoyed Serie A. And I mean, like you said, I mean, for a striker, it's the best league. I mean, you look at the players that do well over there. I mean, Higuain, Cavani, Immobile, historically have put up numbers, I mean, much bigger than what you normally get for strikers in the other leagues. And kind of scoring from wingers is also kind of not as prominent in Serie A, I guess, as it is in most of the other divisions. It's just, it's, yeah, strikers tend to have a lot of success there if they do well. Hmm. So I think it's it's an exciting opportunity for Abraham. He'll be one to watch. Yeah. Um, Another up, one up to next... watch. Um, Luke de Jong, maybe? Oh my god. <sighs> See, okay, here's the problem with this, right? Because when we were going to record right off the back of deadline day, I was so devastated about oh so many things that just like so fundamentally physiologically broken that I was going to give what was probably going to be my most depressing monologue on this show of all time. And now I'm just so numb that I can't really do that anymore, but I am going to express my thoughts. So here are my, here's my thought, right? The, the, so for the, again, for those that have been, what's the quote living under a rock slow, whatever your favorite phrase is, will. It's um, living under a rock. Um, so for those of you that are slow, um, basically, 
Barcelona has had a fire sale this summer, which is what all of us dreamt of and what all of us desperately wanted in order to just shore up the finances. And if you had asked me three months ago, the one thing that I wanted from the window was not a signing. It was to get rid of dead weight. And we did a lot of it. Hey, there were you, a lot of you- you got rid of a lot of dead weight. There were a lot of players that made their exits, bid them farewell. I don't want to be an ungrateful garbage fan that is just like, you know, flipping the finger at them as they walk out. But I'm just, it's just the type of thing where it's like, all right, good riddance. Nice. None of them. We'll move, we can move on. I mean, I don't know. Life is, life is hard being privileged. You know, some of these, some of these guys probably have a lot of problems and things that are tough to work through. I don't want to be insensitive, but here's what I will say. I, 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 maybe my tone there was facetious. I actually think I believe what I just said. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to need some more convincing on that, but I'm glad. (laughs) But here's my, here's my, here's the problem, right? We got rid of Griezmann um, in a way that everybody's going to look back on and be like, wow, Barcelona did this with Suarez last year. Now they're doing it with a player that's even better and has even more of a legacy and has probably even more to prove and even more capability to do so. What do they expect is going to happen? Frankly, I don't know. Was this an effort for us to just acquiesce in the fact that we weren't going to win the league and we just wanted to make sure that Real Madrid didn't either? That might be something that's going on beneath the surface, which is crazy to think about. But fundamentally you're taking what is anywhere from because i don't know i'm sure the figures are out there somewhere but like no one seems to actually know somewhere between 700 and like 900,000 a week is what they're paying this guy and again i love griezmann was he a fit at barcelona over the course of his time there no he was not but um uh, this this was his chance to be a fit in some ways. Well, his chance know. to be a fit was when we got Luke de Jong because he would finally have a second striker to play off of. But <laughs> that irony aside, we got the wages off the book. Whatever. It's fine. It's going to be a two-year loan obligation to buy or a or an option to buy. Whatever. Everybody was screaming on the... I watched 12 hours of Fabrizio Romano's Twitch channel. Like I listened to the audio while I was at work. Just the whole day, back and forth, back and forth. What's going to happen? You know, we wanted to get a player in the midfield that was industrious, like Wijnaldum. We had contemplated Saul at some point. We end up being like, okay, maybe we can do a swap deal. The swap deal Atletico is not interested in. Then they sell Saul basically to Chelsea with it for a loan, but then there's an option to buy or something for 40 mil. And then we give them Griezmann for 40 mil, basically. It's like, why couldn't we have done a swap? It's just so many weird things happening, right? Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, is it good for us to lighten the checkbook? Yeah, I don't think anybody even understands and can possibly wrap their head around just how horrific the finances are for this club. I don't, frankly. I don't understand it. I don't know how bad they are. All I know is it keeps me up at night. But the big thing (laughs) is that we went, and after this glorious summer, again, certain situations made me sad right emerson coming back from that is with like you know his mom talking about how his dream to be the next danny alves which again if you are interested in hearing the problems with that statement you can go listen to our previous episode but like he comes in he has one game it's a it's an absolute shocker he misplaces every pass i feel bad because he seems like a nice guy he could be a better defender than dest gets sold for 30 million. Somebody puts an offer in for 30 million for that player, you sell him. Doesn't matter. You let go of Messi this summer. You cut your losses. Every player you can check you can cash in, you cash in. But there were yeah. some situations like that where you're like, "Ugh, wow. Well, ugh, we never even really got to see him play." There's others where you even you just forgot they were on loan and they got sold for 5 million like Carles Alenia and it is what it is. You know, you can say what you want about him. He it's done. Okay. But 
to do all of that, to take this sinking ship and just scramble and throw your most value, two of your most valued assets off of it, yeah. just hurl okay. them off, one for free and then one for potentially 40 million in three years, throw a bunch of academy players that just like, you know, whatever, just toss them. You know, Mark Gureja ended up being sold to Brighton and we got like 1.8 million. Yay. Like, I wish we had he's, that player back. That's a guy that I wish we had he's, back. He's much better than 1.8 million, I would think. He's he's very good, isn't he? He isn't was like 18 million. He was bought by Brighton, but we only got 1.8 because we had yeah. a sell-on clause, a percentage. That's tough. Because he was yeah. owned by Hitafe. But all these players, I, right? I, I thought you would, I thought you had loaned him to Hitafe for some mm -mm, reason. He's been but playing there not. for for a little bit. Yeah, okay. I wish we'd loaned him. Man, would I love having Kukudesha on our side. That guy plays with a certain... He plays with yeah. sand in his teeth. He's just, like, Ooh. so... Just, like... Never, never so, heard that one before, but I like it. Like, yeah. I don't know, gritty, raspy. I don't really know what the, what the thing... He's abrasive, really, yeah. is what he is. And he does... Oh, the, yeah. He's, like, a Vidal slash Suarez, but for left back, which, frankly... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, is, watched, I watched his games with Hitafe. I mean, he's... he's uh, not a player I'd like to come up against. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. And so I, and I wish we had that again. That is the type of player that oh. we always seem to lack a little bit at Barca. But fundamentally, we do all of this brilliant, you know, pruning of the bushes. And then what do we do? What do we do in the final hour? Not even in the final hour past the <laughs> deadline. The buzzer beater has gone. No, not the buzzer beater. The buzzer has gone. There's no beater. It's it's done. The book is closed. The door is locked, right. deadbolted multiple times, and yet somehow some subterfuge nonsense is going on right. where like we can still sign players, and we bring in Luke De Young. Okay, and here's uh -huh. the thing. Here's the thing. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to look at that, and they're going to be like, okay, Martin, but. It's a one-year loan, and you're only yeah. paying one million of his salary, and one million for mm -hmm. a striker that could get you a certain number of goals. If you split yeah. up the the amount of money you're paying for each goal, it could end up being worth it. Okay, here's my problem with the Luke De Jong loan. Okay, besides all of the surface level facts that are like, you know, he's the third string at Sevilla, which is a team that is below <laughs> us already, and the fact yeah. that he scored zero goals in twelve appearances for Newcastle, which obviously everybody's going to focus on because it's a English, uh, an Anglo-centric you know, media that is obviously going to look at that and be like, wow, he sucks. Well, it's, I'm I mean, not even looking at that. I'm not Newcastle. even, yeah. I'm not even looking at that. What I'm okay. looking what, at is what, just, what are you looking at? What are you? So how do you, how do you devote your entire transfer window to offloading dead weight and then just bring more aboard? That is my biggest problem. Fundamentally. Do we need a striker? Yes. Did, why, why did, did we need a striker? Do we need to discard Braithwaite as well? Yes. Anybody can tell me how good they think Braithwaite is. That player is not good. I am sorry. Braithwaite is the type of guy that is surprised every time the ball gets to him. That is my one opinion about Braithwaite. He gets the ball and he's always looks shocked that it came to him. That is the antithesis of the Barca philosophy. The Barca philosophy is about expecting the ball to come to you and knowing what you're going to do before it gets there. And every time his, he touches the ball, it comes off his shin. Okay. Well, you're going to score. Love... Did, he, did he score a goal here and there? Did he do a funny dance by the by the corner flag? Whatever, man. I do not care. Did he score oh, one diving header? He is fundamentally like that is going to regress to the mean. He's not going to be a 20 goal scorer for us. He's just going to be another incredibly impossibly average player that this team has recruited over the past five, six, seven years that has ended up here taking up a number that they 
never deserved and don't deserve all the hate they get because they didn't choose it, right? Like no one forced them. Some Barcelona came knocking, one of the biggest names in the world, gave them a bunch of money. It's the same thing with Umtiti. The fans boo Umtiti. Why are you booing the guy that just actually played well for enough times that he was given a contract that was excellent? And then, yeah, he made decisions about his career with his knee and the World Cup and the injury, and he made... He, he, you know, he refuses to leave. He thinks that he wants to go play for a Champions League club, whatever. If you were given a multi-million dollar contract and, yeah. and all these different things, get over yourself. You would be doing the exact same thing. But the point is, the point isn't even well, Umtiti because Umtiti was at one point a very, very class defender. The point yeah. is, it's Andre Gomes, it's Malcolm, it's all of these players back to back to back to back that we bring in that when we recruit them people are like oh yeah they have potential but if you really look at them Mm -hmm. it's like is this guy really the monstrous monstrous potential that we think he is we brought in trinkau from braga i remember when we got when i heard the news i was like oh okay i'll go watch some of his stuff watch some of his stuff he looked fine Sometimes well, I mean any, anyone looks fine if you're watching than, their highlights, Martin. Oh, that doesn't mean no, no, anything. No, I understand what you're saying, but I'm saying even looking at his numbers at Braga, which were quite good in terms of goal scoring, whatever, you're gonna bet your future as FC Barcelona on that player and bring him in and then be surprised when he everybody's like, Yeah, you know, maybe based on his last season at Braga, maybe he'll score eight goals for us. I heard things like that in, in the preseason of last year. I think he scored a one goal, maybe. I don't want to, you know, defame him, but like, it's just the same thing. Where it's like, why are we recruiting these players that are just not actually the ones that uh-huh. we, you know, the, the competitive, real creme de la creme? And I think part of this comes down to maybe, which is incredibly depressing, but we talked about this in the last episode about how Arsenal seems to have become more accepting of their recruitment and just been like, listen, we can't bring in, we can't compete for Raphael Varane. We have to go for Ben White and Ben White may actually be good enough. I think this is a situation where it's almost like Barcelona to a certain extent, like we got Pedri and that was brilliant, but so meant so much of the recruitment over the past five, six, seven years has been just taking these players that are just bafflingly not it, not it. So Luke De Jong is a center forward with heading ability, and he yeah. maybe has a knack for goals, what have you. That is yeah. not the quality of player that we have signed historically that we should be signing that embodies the style of play that we need to embody. And if we wanted a target number nine, why didn't we bring Tammy Abraham? Why didn't we go in for a striker that was actually going to we do don't, something? We don't have the money. More you impressive. Bought you bought a striker already this window. You bought two strikers. I don't know, man. I like. I get what you're saying, but I mean, I, I just, I, I just don't know. I wouldn't be this hung up about this one guy. Like you said, the rest of the window, resounding success and clearing out all this deadwood, right? And if things work out, you know, like you said, I mean, Diong is going to be third, maybe fourth string. Right, if if they have Depay, Aguero, even Braithwaite might even play striker minutes ahead of him. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess maybe this is just borne out of some of my frustrations with Liverpool. But it's like, come on, it's it's a third string striker. He might score five goals. Sure, he's not very good. But let's do let's do I a mean, thought it's, experiment. It's, it's what because it's. I, I mean, he's he's not getting paid like an obscene amount of money. It's correct. one year. Correct. Yeah. 
I, it's just every year, every year we do this, right? Every year it's Jason Maria. We bring in for one year and it's, and it doesn't make any sense. We bring in Kevin Prince Boateng for one year. It just doesn't make sense. It's an optics thing. It's bad for the the image. It's, but sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. But Paulinho Paulinho was good. Yeah, I know. But no one expected him to be. Everyone thought that would be the biggest, you know, joke signing out of any of these before okay here's what here's what we're right? gonna do we're gonna and do a thought experiment the maybe maybe de Jong is gonna score 10 goals for you even though you thought it was stupid you know maybe he's gonna maybe yeah. he's just there to give depay a rest during the cup matches or something and he's good enough if, any, to if anything he's bang, there to play with depay yeah uh, I, I don't mean, know you're, you're probably right but still I'm desperate to do I mean, this you, thought experiment you a, because I, I, I really, really want to get you to a point of empathy yeah. because I think I can get you there. And I, I want to respect what you're saying, but I'm just so upset that I can't rationalize. Hmm. So, okay. What is a, what, what would you say in encapsulates the way that Liverpool attacks in one sentence or one phrase? Uh, cross and hope. <laughs> cross and hope. Okay. That's different, I guess, that was, than what I that was expected. Maybe more- what like what what do you mean um what do you mean by the way we attack i mean do you how mean like, you, on a, how, like more... okay we talked about so we talked about this in the last episode like how would you define the player that you would be looking for if Firmino were to be on his way out um yeah uh i mean that's that's a tough one i mean uh like are, are you asking me to like say like for right now or just like for a more general thing yes for the past five years and what could continue to be the next five years like, what is the player that fits into the Liverpool system that you would need as a striker? I think I think we need a large central presence that can actually finish crosses because, you know, like I said, I mean, our, our attacking game plan is pretty much built. We score two types of goals. We score goals where we cross it into the box and one of Salah, Mane, Firmino is able to get on the end of it because it's a really good ball and we've got good crossers, even though we have very short forwards. Or mm-hmm. we press high, win the ball, high up the field, quick counterattack, and score that way. And you know, we kind of lost one of those options last year because we we didn't press as high because of all our injury problems and having to shift like Fabinho and Henderson further back. So it's just last year, especially, it was a lot of crosses into the box. And you know, it's worked for us in the past. But when I like actually take a step back, I'm like, wait a second. Like our tallest forward is five foot eight. Like maybe this is not a good idea. So I would say, you know, honestly, and maybe this is why I'm uh, I must have this. Like I would I would not be upset about having like the actual Luke De Jong right here as a backup striker. If Liverpool so, is signing, I'd be like, yeah, okay. So here's sure. here's my proposition. So you think your proposition is that you, like you actually don't need the Firmino role. You need something different. You need no, something I think that gives you need to move on. Yeah. Okay. So. Now I'm going to tell you that in a sudden transfer deadline day bonanza, you signed the one and only, and this is, I mean, because Klopp has just such a strong relationship with this guy. He just knows him. He's just been watching him for years in the league. He just respects the quality of play. You're going to play Brazilian Bernard up top. Oh, that's the player that you brought in a five foot three, uh, tidy player, lots of tattoos, white teeth, something that, you know, Mane, Firmino, and Klopp will like. But fundamentally, yeah. goes against everything that you stand for. Well, How are you feeling I, as the result of this new glorious I even, acquisition? I don't even have to really imagine, because, like, this is, that's kind of what the Takumi Minamino signing to play at striker felt like. Um, it's, yeah, that's, <laughs> Bernard's actually quite a similar player. That's fine. And I was like, it was disappointing, but I, I was I was still excited. And maybe this is a Liverpool thing. That's like our our current backup striker, or whatever, is Divock Origi, who like 
generally looks like he has not cared about a game of football like in two, maybe three years. He has zero trust in Klopp. So I don't know. I mean, I, I personally would be happy for just anything, but I know we come from clubs with very, very different cultures around that where like Liverpool have had the exact same front three for the last five years. And like Barcelona, like you said, have just been bringing in wingers over and over again, getting Malcolm and Dembele and Coutinho and now Depay and Luke De Jong, all these guys just trying to find something new. But I don't know. I mean, I at, at least you're doing something, Martin. Like, at least you're clearing off some deadwood, and you did sign like okay. a lot of very good players okay. this window. Like, come let's on. okay, let's segue to what you're what you're getting with that shortly, and then we'll wrap up the intro because we, I mean, man, we have done we have talked a lot already. Here's here's what I have to say. Fundamentally, you wanted a player like Luke De Jong that had the aerial ability that could give you the chance to put in all of the hill mary balls that we yeah. play in seemingly every single end of a game that's threatening that we're you know tied one one with Deportivo Alaves like. Yeah, You want a player that's going to do that? Maybe that's legitimately a puzzle piece that we've been missing. But the question is, why on earth are we doing that in the first place? That is my mm. fundamental question, which is why is Barcelona a team that legitimately never takes the line? If it's possible to avoid the line, we never take it. We always cut inside. We always try to combine through the middle. And it's kind of been, uh, I don't know, what's the phrase? Like the the knife you fall on, the knife you swallow. I don't know. It's, I don't know what the idiom is. Like, yeah. it's it's been a problem, but that's the way that we play. But, and uh, and we've never what, what was what's the history of us with number nines of that stature Ibrahimovic who came for one year and then left and like yeah. if anything was impossibly skilled way more intelligent way more technically proficient with his feet and his passing and acrobatic had way more to offer if we wanted yeah. a target number nine striker why didn't we sign Adurits back when he was winning every single header in La Liga oh no yeah well five years ago as a sub you could put on the last I mean this minutes. is this is like what we talked about in the regions thing though like just just because Barcelona have played this way does that mean you're like still locked into it for this season I mean I if we become a team that crosses the ball into Luke de Jong who again my point is too is not even like he's an elite company no, in not. terms of his heading he's not even that good he's just like maybe our only player above six foot before the back line yeah, but it's, it's a different option, right? And obviously, like, if you still had Messi and you're going to play with him, then obviously putting Luke de Jong on the same field as Messi is not going to do anything, right? He's, he's just going to he's gonna be useless. But if you don't have that much attacking creativity, and this might be a season where you, you're not able to break down defenses easily, where you might have to send more balls into the box. And it's like for, you know, whatever, like 5 million or however much it ends up costing, like having a tall guy in there, if you do have to send those balls in, Maybe it's fine. And again, I'm not expecting him to play very much. I'm expecting him to play mostly in, you know, cup games, games against the lower end of La Liga that might just sit back and park the bus. And like, he's, he'll be fine. He'll score like five goals. He'll, he'll leave and you'll forget he was even there. And it'll, it'll, it'll just be a, it'll be an okay loan. And I know, I know it's not the dream signing you were going to make, but like you, you weren't going to sign Tammy Abraham this summer. Right. No, we you, and, we and at least, at least, you did this, and that this still gives you room to sign the next summer if this happens. This is this is not I mean, bank, this is not banking on another youth prospect from Portugal that costs thirty million, and you're going to have trouble offloading. This is someone yeah. who you can you know is automatically going to be offloaded if you don't do anything. It's done after this year. I, I agree with you. I think that these are all positives. I. I'm hoping Coutinho can make a recovery and play the false nine for us this year. The, my fingers. Are I just crossed. want to see him play, man. I, he's, he still hasn't gotten any chances, right? I Has wonder. Well, 
I mean, his, he's, I've been, I watch every single inside training video that we post online and recently he's been training. So I think he's, he was going to come back for his first game against Sevilla, but now that game has been pushed back. So guess when, uh, what our next game is, uh, Real Madrid, uh, Bayern Munich in the Champions oh. League. <laughs> <laughs> so that's his homecoming. Wow, I, I wasn't expecting that to be worse than the one, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's going to be trial be, by fire. That'd be crazy. I just like, I don't know. I feel like he's got to get a chance now, right? With Messi, I think he can be a good player, ball. man. I don't know. What do you mean he can be a good player? There's a reason he got bought for this much money. I mean, Coutinho, when he's actually playing well, is one of the best attacking midfielders, or you know, inside wingers, or whatever you want to call him. Like that's is. clear. Like, he, I don't know about he, is. He's been injured he for so long. It was. The, I mean, you he, can't he, say he showed, is. Even at Bayern, he showed flashes. There were games at Bayern where it's very clear he saw. There's been games for Brazil in recent and that's, years. And that's that's actually. Same fundamentally going to be my concluding argument with all of this is that I think for, for many years now, since the glory days, maybe I'm just you know, nostalgic for the, for the golden years of, you know, when we were doing things between 2008 and 2012 and we had MSN 2014, 2015, 16, whatever. I think right now this idea that like Barcelona fans should be happy with a player that shows flashes is really depressing. And the fact that every single time we bring a, a, a signing in, it's got to be this search for silver linings. It's really depressing. I, I don't want to look for silver linings anymore. I don't yeah. want to have to try that hard to squint and look at a signing and be like, well, there could be positives. I want to look at something and be like, we have a project. We're doing things the right way. And frankly, we were on the right path selling people. We got Moriba or Eli Moriba off the, the, the list because he was being a pain and he was offloaded. Again, good riddance, whatever. I'm not going to make any comments. People were really mean to him on social media. Whatever. He's a guy that comes from a family maybe that didn't have as much. And as many of these players do, not knows, like, I mean, I don't know anything about his background. I'm just assuming that it's yeah. possible that when you have the opportunity to get a lucrative contract, you shouldn't be villainized for it because I mean, yeah, that's an opportunity very few of us do have. To, to any, any people who do that kind of stuff on Twitter, like just like imagine – it's like remove soccer from it. Imagine if like the exact same situation was happening at your own job for any of this stuff. Think about this financially. These decisions become a lot more understandable. Right? I know there's so much emotion tied up in these things and people, people, Barcelona fans love Barcelona for reasons other than it being a job or a place of employment. So the players, you know, that's still what it is. And, you know, you got you to gotta let the kid make his own decisions on this stuff. All right. And it's the type of thing that people refuse to remember that these careers, especially if you aren't as marketable as Lionel Messi, are a 20-year stint at most yeah. for yeah. most of these players. And, and it, realistically, you only have a chance to sign a big contract yeah. three or four times over the course of your career, like yep. if you're a and, standard player. And unless you're really, uh, you know, famous or marketable, then it's also not a transferable skill. At all, and if you, you and know, if you if, are if, pressured yeah, by, yeah. well, I, I mean, like uh, if, I don't mean to Mariba, cut across if, you, but yeah, if, if Mariba like burns out in five years, like that's it, he's exactly, got, he's got nothing from this, and, and then even, taking the extra money now might might completely change his life. And right? fundamentally, it, the thing that is important to remember too is look at all the pressure for all these players to buy all these things and yes you could just say like no. oh have better financial management have better education that teaches yeah, yeah, these players to have yeah, better yeah, financial management on twitter for not having cool shoes or something and it's like there's exactly no <laughs> exactly so it's like okay at, at the end of the day if you had the yeah. opportunity to take six million off yeah. of showing up to your job for three weeks do yeah. not lie and say like, oh, well, that would have taken funding out of yeah. my massive yeah. conglomerate oh, organization. I, yeah, I just care too much about this job. It's just like, and like injury, injuries too. That's another thing. It's like, yeah. no one's safe, right? This could end at any moment. 
for any of them. Take yeah. take as much money as you can get. Get that bag, players. You know. <laughs> so anyway, with that, again, final point is just that. I just feel like I've been looking for silver linings for so long. I just want to be able to look at something purely like Pedri has been like Frankie de Jong has become like Araujo has become. I just want to be able to look at things and with my club and just be like proud of it and just say, you know what? I agree with this. I can see the reason why we're doing this. We are building to something. We are trying to achieve success in the short term and also set us up for the future. I, I don't want to constantly be splitting hairs and trying to be like, you're trying to rationalize all the time. It's too much energy. I yeah, shouldn't have to spend I, that much energy on this it should just be the type of thing where i look at somebody and it's either apathy maybe or it's like positivity not this nonsense about you've oh, you've been blessed you know, being a fan. You, you've been able to do that for years and years yeah i don't know that's that's what signs are like for most 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 of us normal people well so tell me about it so you, tell me about fsg because i'm sure you have some opinions on recent i mean I, i'd there. love to even have a even have a signing to look at the silver linings of <laughs> these days um, oh my I don't know. god! FSG is very complicated. I, I mean, I, I started supporting Liverpool back in like the 2009-2010 season, which is mm-hmm. uh, before before FSG brought them. And you know, pr- there will always be something in the back of my head remembering those years. And like, e- even as upset as I am now, like it's it's nowhere near as bad. Those were times where we were like, it was it was before the you know, rest of the teams were even as good as before it's Spurs and West Ham and Leicester had even gotten up to this level. And we, we were finishing eighth, seventh below Everton, some of these seasons. And it was awful. We'd, we'd sign players like, you know, like a 32 year old Craig Bellamy or like Stuart Downing. And it's just legends. Like, yeah. I mean, Craig, Craig Bellamy, to be fair, was very good. Stuart Downing, <laughs> not so much. I remember were those, were those the Rafa Benitez years or am I totally uh, misplacing no, those, that? Those are the, um, I think that was a mix with Roy Hodgson and Kenny Dalglish years. Mm. Yeah. Kenny Dalglish. Dalglish was okay. Um, we we had an incredible run, like right after we got him. Like uh, hmm. I remember the, like he there was like the the last month of his first season. We were just blowing out teams like five nil every week. I think uh, Maxi Rodriguez, uh, old Ooh. Argentinian guy. Yes, yeah, big he player. Was, he was absolutely lighting it up for a little bit. That, those were fun teams. We had Rodriguez. We had was Dirk that Torres. Out. No, Torres had left. Uh, Torres Turk Kaut was so good back like that 2010 yeah. World Cup. He was such a good player. A 2014 World Cup too. He played. He played left back. He was a right winger. He played left back for the Netherlands, and they made it to World Cup hmm. semifinal. It was crazy. Did you, did you guys have Mascherano back then? Did you have um, no? We Xabi Alonso. We had let him go. Those were those are both like the summer before I started watching. Actually, I see. Okay. I believe mm-hmm. maybe Mascherano might have been two years before I started watching. I think he left first, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm yeah, hazy but, on my Merseyside history. You'll have to forgive me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what what are we talking about? What, FSG. What you, you might you might it might be important to actually mention like yeah. what FSG is to those that don't know. FSG is the owners of Liverpool. So the previous owners were um, these other American businessmen. I think it was Hicks and Gillette, who were also based in New England. So um, I guess they must Gillette know Stadium. each other. That's that's maybe, uh, yeah, I, I believe so. I, I I don't. There's multiple Gillettes though, so hmm. uh, I don't want to make any promises on that. But anyway, I mean yeah, they Fusion the, Pro Glide, my favorite Gillette, ab- absolutely destroyed Liverpool's finances. I mean the club was, 
the club was almost into administration, which means that it would have like dissolved. And obviously it would never have actually dissolved because there's too much at stake. But the, just like that was like in the picture, just to give you an right. idea of how bad this had gotten. And FSG came in, bought the club and they, you know, I, I can't lie. They've done an absolutely incredible job. I mean, just looking at the club as a whole, the state of its finances, mm -hmm. the state of everything compared to what it was 10 years ago. It, it's incredible. They, they have turned Liverpool back into a big global powerhouse, right? They've got the right people in. They've got the right managers in. They've generally got the right players in. There's been very, very few bad signings over the past few years. I mean, the only real flop you could think of is maybe Nabi Keita. And even that, I mean, that's, that's being a little bit harsh because that's, that's most of the injuries. And that's also still an excellent percentage rate of successes. Yeah. You, that was a player that when you guys bought him, everybody was looking at and was like, no, yeah, this is it's, a good it's, buy. It's a, it's a complete, it's an understand. And, and like, again, I hesitate to call that even a flop because it was an understandable transfer. We've gotten very unlucky with his injury stuff. And, you know, he hasn't been perfect when he has played. So that's why I might still classify him there. But still, and, you know, other things too. I mean, they, they've got the academy back to a much higher standard than it was at 10 years ago. They've added new stands into Anfield. They have renovated our training complex. You know, the, they are doing everything right. But what they have also done is they have tried to make Liverpool a self-sustainable football club. And, you know, that's that's incredible, right? If they can get it to work. They, they don't put their own money into it. They're, I think, besides Tottenham, they're like the only, the only club in the top half of the Premier League that is able to do this. Hmm. And, you know, that's really impressive. But... It comes at a cost, and the cost is that we have not made any signings since we stopped selling players, and even even when we are selling players now, is we our last big batch of signings was right. Uh, I guess it was right before we won the Champions League. We we bought Virgil Van Dyke um, in January, and then the following summer we brought in Fabinho and Allison. Uh, that's a total LA of like. 200 million or something which, is, which is mind you a fantastic window but i totally get where you're coming from that's been it that's been it since then you know the the next year we signed nobody after winning the champions league we signed adrian a backup goalkeeper and, and that's he had a it. and he had a very tepid time uh, okay i too. i actually i really disagree with that. i think adrian <laughs> almost no criticism he he did yeah. more than pretty much any backup goalkeeper he won Adrian had to play 10 league games and we won all of them. And yes, you know, he, to he made a totally reasonable. He made a couple terrible mistakes in extra time against Atletico Madrid. But I mean, watch that game. The fact that that game was even in extra time is, is absurd, right? There are a lot of other players responsible for that defeat. There's a also, lot of other players. He, people are quick to forget the, the perils of Simone Mignolet and uh, Loris Carius that were yeah. his predecessors too, right? Like, I mean, and, you can only be so harsh on these players. Yeah, I mean, Adrian was, I know, like you said, you can make a legitimate ad argument that Adrian is like the second best performing Liverpool goalkeeper like the past 10 years or whatever, and people just uh, gave him nothing for it. Anyway, um, we signed we signed Adrian, you know, it's an opportunity to really cement your, ourselves and like be like, okay, yes, like we, we're back, let's sign some new players. We didn't do it. And then the following summer, we got, a, or we got, we got Minamino in that winter, I think Harvey Elliott too, maybe. Maybe that was the summer before. And then we got uh, Tiago and Jota last year, which is good. That was a step in the right direction. Those are signings I was very excited for both of them. Jota especially has panned out brilliantly. I think he's he's going to be a crucial piece to us going forward. Tiago has had 
you know, I, I won't lie, a very disappointing start. And he, has, he hasn't been, like, horrendously bad or anything, but it's just, you know, the expectations around him could not have been higher at the time. He was, you know, he was mad at the match in the Champions League final, and people were calling him the best midfielder in the world or whatever. And As were you, probably, too, yeah. I, no, as, I, I mean, Thiago's, Thiago's always been one of my favorite players. And, right. And, you know, I think it's... We He's that magic. Really to, we haven't got to see the best of him so far. And part of that is his fault. Part of it is not his fault. But I'm... I'm hopeful we'll get more this year, although it seems like Carvey Elliott may have taken a spot, so we might not ever get to see him play again. Who knows? I think um, the challenge with all of this, too, that makes it all the more difficult in this league in particular, you mentioned that that window right after winning the Champions League. I I think right now, more than ever, we are seeing that in order to stand still, you have to move forward in the PL. And standing still is moving backwards is maybe a better way to put that. Sure. But yeah, sure. Okay. (laughs) Uh, yes, maybe that's that, that might be yeah, a better way but, to phrase it. But just this idea that like, even if Man United signs Varane and brings in Ronaldo and brings in Sancho and whoever else is going to slot into their starting 11 that they brought in this summer, I don't know that they have bumped up and moved anywhere in my expected position they've, for them this they've year. They've moved above us, I would say. But again, not that far. And yeah, it's like before bringing in Ronaldo, it's like... I know Varane and Sancho are both incredible players. They're they're both going to be fantastic, but it's still just like, yeah, that's what I expect. That's a normal window for United. They're not really and, tipping the scales here. This is just keeping up. And that's and, the thing you know, is like City City have one window like this where they don't really do anything, and everyone's like, oh my god, like are Chelsea and United better now? Like are they going to fall off? It's just the speed of things, and that's that's kind of what I was getting at. It's like as much as I like that FSG is trying to make this a financially self sustainable thing or whatever. I mean. That's gonna. It's gonna be very, very difficult to compete with teams that aren't taking that approach. If you do this, and to do that, I mean, it's possible. We've seen it's possible, but all the pieces are gonna have to fall into the right place. You're gonna have to get a fantastic manager, which we've got right now. Uh, you're gonna need to have like a pretty much perfect team, all playing in the same years, which we've had for the past few years. We had Mane, Salah, Firmino, you know, a fantastic midfield, fantastic defense behind them all this time and you know what we also needed to get that started though was we needed a, a white whale that we could sell for 150 million to some idiots and we had that we had coutinho was the white whale and barcelona were the idiots we got rid of him and that funded idiots here hello that that funded so much of what we did because yeah you know what, what really scares me is that it's you know you need this investment to win if you look at the team that liverpool had uh, when they won the Champions League, when they won the league. It's, you know, compare that to the team that they had three years before. One player, still the same, Jordan Henderson. That's it. Everyone else had been brought in new. Everyone else is a replacement. We're getting close to being three years on from that now. And it's the exact same team as it was three and years I don't, ago. And realistically, out of all the players in your lineup, who is getting better? Trent? Robbo? Trent, Robertson? Yeah. Hart, exactly. Curtis Jones. Who yeah. weren't a part. I mean, yeah, but like weren't and, a part of the picture yeah, three they, years they ago. Part of that. And we're, we're steadily getting worse. Salah has maintained the same level. Credit to him. Fantastic. I mean, I, I've i had my problems with Salah in the past. And I'd say like out of our front three, like if, if you imagine them all at like their peak, his play style is probably the one that I, I like the least. I find the least enjoyable to watch. But he's maintained it. You know, without Salah over the past two seasons, especially last season, and we'd have yeah. been absolutely sunk. But I mean, Mane and Firmino have gotten so much worse. 
And I, I see people saying that like, oh, well, we still have the best front three in the country. It's like, what, what, what are you basing this off of? Like you can't have watched them play in the past two years. I mean, if, if, if someone, I mean, Harry Kane and, and Hyunmin Son are better than Mane and Firmino right now. No question. And you know, I mean, Spurs isn't even the real argument there. But like, I heard someone say that like Firmino was better than Havertz. And I'm like, what? Like, it, I, I don't know. I, I guess people are just stuck in 2018. Yeah, I, it's the glory it, it year seems, phenomenon. It seems like we are as well. You know, we're we're just we seem unwilling to move on. And I think, I think one of the one of the biggest challenges. Partially... Or go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, like, one of the biggest challenges too is that there's not only just pressure from uh, up top, but there's pressure from below too. Look at a team like Tottenham that every that was going to the window. Every everybody was like kind of laughing at them, pointing fingers at them because that's just the thing you do when Tottenham go into the window. Look what look at them. They brought in Golini from Atalanta, which is on a loan and whatever. I mean, he's a probably a decent goalkeeper. Will be a good backup, better than Joe Hart or whoever they had before. They brought in Brian Heal, who is legitimately an excellent talent. Who, admittedly, I'm worried about in the Premier League, but. Barcelona was tracking for three years and made it very, very well known and is could be yeah. a really, really talented import. And they got a Christian Romero. They brought well. in Christian Romero, who well, is I like, I, I was talking yeah. to one of my one of my buddies from Soccer Detail, which we'll talk about briefly at the very, very end of this immensely long introduction. Um, and he was saying that a quote that I found very, very funny, uh, Ben, if you're listening to this, he said, like something to the effect of like, I don't think I've ever seen a more like just authentically aggressive like player and i couldn't agree more he is just yeah. super yeah. super okay. aggressive but also very calculated and the antithesis of otamendi in that he isn't rash he can go all the way and redline it like gas the floor and he's still careful about what he does incredible no. defender they brought in mm. uh, well it'll bring in next year pape matarsar who i have not seen that much of but I've heard very impressive things about. Could be a very compelling midfielder. They had Sissoko leave. They got $3 million Great. for him. Whatever. But this guy Aurier seems like he, finally, he could be a they? good option. Lamella left, who was kind of a meme. And like a lot of people really liked him just based on the fact that he was just an absolute madman yeah. when it counted. You're talking about pure aggression. That's, a, that's another guy. But, but it's like, <laughs> that's a window where you look at it and you're like, okay, this is a team that is... It's a great window. Across the board, window. strengthening. They strengthened a keeper, a winger, a midfielder, a defender. Yeah. And, and, and so you you're know, not, you know, you're uh, fighting that. You're fighting teams and, that are gradually pushing from the bottom. You have Aston Villa that brought in Leon Bailey and Emiliano, Emiliano Buendia and whoever and and Danny Angs or whoever else I'm I'm forgetting. Like, yeah. these teams from below are you're, pushing you're and making, recruiting. You're making me worried, Martin. <laughs> Because the only the only position we recruited in the summer is like weirdly a position that looks like we're not even going to need it. Because I know we had this bizarre center back crisis last year, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, we need a center back." And we got Ibrahim Konate, who's like, you know, <laughs> I've, a, I've, watched, worst I've, watched, Phillips. <laughs> I've watched him in the league. He's not. I mean, he's he, he's a great player. He has loads <laughs> of potential. But it's like uh, I just. As much as I like him and as I, I want to succeed, I just I don't understand this signing in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. Because I mean, you look at where I leave us now. I mean, Konate coming in is fourth choice at the moment. He's he's behind Van Dyke, Gomez, Matip. It's disrespectful. We, we, he's our only signing. He's fourth choice, and like maybe he won't be. Maybe he'll move above Gomez. Maybe he'll move above Matip, who, by the way, is an incredible underrated player. Who Fantastic is, player just i mean miles better than anyone thinks and if he didn't have injury problems i'd be thrilled to have him but you know you know who else has injury problems konate and gomez 
And it's like it's <sighs> it's like playing Russian roulette where all the bullets are broken. I don't even know how that analogy works. It's like I know you're trying like, to it, basically just get as many injury prone players as possible so that you're praying that when one is injured, the others isn't instead of just getting like one rock or focusing all your efforts on getting them healthy. Yeah. And it, it's a bizarre situation because now, I mean, if we were going to bring in a center back, then I feel like it should have been someone who, you know, was rock solid and didn't have these huge health questions hanging over them. Cause you know, then we could have actually said, okay, this is actually going to be our guy, but Kanate still feels like a bit of a gamble for that reason. And it leaves our depth right. in a really weird place. Cause right now it, it, it just seems stupid. You know, because we, you know, if we can either put two center backs on the bench or have one of Joe Gomez and Konate just not in the squad altogether when everyone's fit. And that's not even mentioning Nat Phillips, who is a legitimate, you know, legitimately very, very good Premier League level center back is just completely out of the picture. We kept him. We could have sold him for 15 million, but we didn't. I don't know why. And he's, he's never going to play unless things go horribly wrong again. And it's just weird how, how we do that. And now have, you know, these two just ridiculous options, like unquestionably the best fourth and fifth choice center backs anyone in the league has. And our backup striker is still Divock Origi. And we still don't have a backup right back. And we still don't have a backup right winger. I just, I, I don't understand. And I, I think this is maybe something that like FSG and Klopp like feed into each other's worst impulses. Because like FSG are just like, they're, you know, as as good as they have been with the financial situation, you know there is stuff I'm frustrated with them about. Their their general approach seems to be like if the team is doing reasonably well, they are not going to I don't know risk it for that push to push them over the line. And you know as long as they can as my feeling is like as long as we can stay competitive top four, they won't care. Right? They they won't make that push to win us the league. If we start losing out, then I have faith that something will change and they'll they'll start pushing to get us back. But I think they're they're fine with good enough. And Klopp is someone who, you know, is is an incredible man manager, but has also shown in his time at Dortmund and now at Liverpool. He can be just overly loyal to players, I guess to a fault. And you know, it's maybe led to people like Origi, like Oxlade Chamberlain, you know, sticking around quite a bit longer than they've proven useful. And you know, there's just we we needed to move on at some point, and where we're left now is with a lot of players that like Klopp clearly does not trust, but also won't sell, and won't move on from. And you know, we're we're relying on Keita and Oxlade Chamberlain midfield when they've they've contributed nothing to the team in two two and a half years. Right, we're we're left relying on Divock Origi, who again is just looks like he does not want to play the sport anymore, and like Harvey Elliott. This is fantastic. But it's like, I, I heard the start of the summer, like, oh, well, we don't need to sign a backup right winger. We have Harvey Elliott coming back. And then Wijnaldum left. And we're like, oh, well, we need a new midfielder. But then it's like, oh, well, Harvey Elliott can play in midfield. So that's fine. And then Shakiri left. And it's like, oh, well, Harvey Elliott's a pretty similar player to Shakiri, So he'll fill that <laughs> hole. And it's like, this kid is 18 years old. And he's, yeah, you're right. he's turning into the next James Milner. He's our depth in three different positions. You couldn't be more correct. I mean, that's what you just said there, I think is just absolutely spot on. I I think that when I look at this center back thing and I want to make this the, if you don't mind, the final note before we move on to our next, because we have two more bullet points for our intro alone. Oh my word. Can we just like um, skip the skip the actual topic for this one? Just <laughs> intro only? I'm kind so, of feeling this. I don't know. Here, here's what I'll say. I think that when I look at the center back situation, it looks to me like the 
just one of the most quintessential like cognitive biases. And I don't know the specific name for it, but it's this idea. It's kind of a little bit of recency bias, but it's something more complex than that, more sophisticated in which somebody looks at a problem that they have in the moment that is very drastic, that they <laughs> see an end date to, and they know it's not going to be a problem forever because the problem expires eventually. And they invest in replacing the problem. And mm -hmm. then once it's replaced, suddenly the the problem goes away, but not because you replaced it, but because the thing that was the problem is now better. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, it just seems yeah. to me like when you have an injury crisis like this, it's like, all right, okay, yeah. throwing the it's towel like, for the season. You, We're going to play Nat Phillips and Reese Williams. That's fine. But don't sign a center back. These players obviously are going to have to get brought back to fitness. But if anything, they spent if, an entire COVID year without games and minutes. They're going to be and, well rested. And if we were going to sign a center back, why didn't we do it in January when we actually needed one, when we desperately needed one? I just, I, I just don't understand. Instead, you we wait. Until, you can take my wait until Samu, everyone's back. Samu Umtiti. He's clamoring for a Champions League club. Oh, man, I just like, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. It's, it's weird. And I look at the age profile of the team. And like I said, you know, players, we, we have very few players that are going to be improving from this age. You know, Gomez and Kanate hopefully should improve. Our wide backs hopefully should improve. But outside the defense, we have nothing. I mean, Fabinho... And Curtis Jones are only midfielders under 30, except for Kate and Ox, who, you know, might as well be 40. I'm looking at their bodies. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Yeah. That's that's no. harsh. I shouldn't be that harsh on these guys, especially after I talked about, you know, not being harsh on players. But it's just it's frustrating. I mean, I think right. it's interesting because, again, we, we had this conversation just now with Barcelona. You feel like there's deadwood in the club. You feel like there's a standard that's been signed that hasn't been up to par. And the gambles that have been yeah. made have not no, even I been know, that they, they enticing were, to begin with. I mean, these, these players were up to par. When they were signed but we, we don't we don't move on right hmm. we the only players we move on from are like you know players like shakiri who which, which i still don't understand why on earth would we sell him for Origi? i just i mean because he, he wanted to go i think he it's wants the impetus to go. that comes from the player right I know, yeah, and you know, but Rigi I, has, I, has no reason to leave. But I get just, what you're saying, but it's it's a twist on the kind of the same fate where it's like, yeah, I mean, you're just handing these people contracts, and I guess when you when you give out a contract, there's a yeah. bit of a coin toss when it comes to whether this will be a success or a failure. But when you are at one of those top clubs, you have high expectations, and just like yeah, you know, we expect a 23 year old not to party in Nashville. We also expect a top team not to make bad signings, and those are the yeah. expectations and that again, exist. We we don't we don't really make bad signings, but we don't really make good signings recently either, I guess. And <laughs> we're we're gonna need to eventually because I think, you know, it, it would be very very difficult to sour the last few years as a Liverpool fan. It's been great. We won the Champions League. We won the first title in 30 years. We've played some great attacking football, and I've had a lot of fun watching it. But I think one of the few things that could really sour that experience is just watching the same squad just get worse and worse over the next few years and getting more and more frustrated with them. Because it's already happening. Man, like, I I, I never thought I'd, I'd be this upset with Firmino this often, like two years yeah. ago. He was, he was one of my you favorite players in the world, and now he's just... Someone who I just I just look at what he is and I just I'm just a little sad and I don't know. Humans That's have tough. a disproportionate tendency to remember the last thing much more strongly than the best thing, and that is yeah. something that you run the risk of doing with this. Is that like people remember? Do you like a name for that? probably i'm sure there is but that's like a i mean that's been proven in in research like psychological research that there is we have you can have this whole vacation that was fantastic but on your flight home it could be really delayed and like that'll be the yeah. thing that oftentimes will sour the entire vacation and no, I've got, if you I've have gotten, these 
huge arguments about that before. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just think yeah. that that's something that you run the risk of and it's, and it's unfortunate, but we'll have to keep our eyes peeled. And um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, like I said, you know, we, we need a big rebuild. And the last time we did that, it was by selling Coutinho and Suarez. And oof, I don't know who those players are going to be in this team. It's not Mane yeah. and Firmino anymore. No one's paying 100 mil for them. I wonder who yeah. will con off of you for an exorbitant fee next time. Uh, I mean, Sala, probably. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. But So as we, as okay, let's look towards wrapping things up. I want to make a quick shout out because I put too much effort into this, frankly, to not shout it out when it was actually uh, complete. But um, yesterday, I think. Yeah, yesterday. Uh, this will be released on, I guess, tomorrow, but Monday. I, I finally, finally, finally uh, pulled the trigger on the scanning piece. Um, this is something that I spent basically up since the Juego de Posición one went live. I've been working on it basically every single night since then. It's like almost three months. Um, it is 33,851 words in total. It is a utter monstrosity of a piece. But I was, I was talking to you, Will, about this when I was shopping for uh, cherry tomatoes and cucumbers the other day. And oh, I, yeah. I expressed my, my thought that this is the type of thing where I'm already very moved and very, very happy by the response that it's gotten. It's the first one that I've put up on Soccer Detail, which is this new blog that I was very, very excited to join um, with Adin Osmondasic and all these other guys that are very, very intelligent. Um, some guys yeah. that were authors at Spiel Verlagerung and others that are up and coming, just brilliant. Bri I mean, there's two kids in this it's, group that are a, set to 17, big, 18. Yeah, it's a big step up from you after you know talking to me on Touchline Theory. So. <laughs> but it was exciting because I, I I really really wanted to to knock the first one out of the park, make it you know a strong contribution to this opportunity, and and I hope I have. And so. It's finally out there. Uh, it's got all sorts of stuff in it. It's got intuitive understandings mm -hmm. and and tr and translations of what it means to have vision in soccer. It's got some research uh, podcast interviews that I've decomposed. It's got a bunch of. It's like got an expose on drill design as a whole on how to really create sessions that elicit certain behaviors, which can be harder than you think. And we're going to actually talk about that when we get to the meat of this episode. Um, it's got, oh my God. I don't know, thir 13 uh, drills that have been handcrafted for your enjoyment. So Ooh. lots and lots and lots and lots of, of content here mashed into something that I could have released as probably six, seven, eight separate blog posts that would have already been five, 6,000 words but, a piece. But why not? Why didn't you do that? Because this is the type of thing that I wanted to be self-contained. I know I've talked about this a little bit, but I want the things that I write. I, I don't want people to have to scramble all over the blog or scramble all over the internet to try to find ways to piece together my ideas. If somebody wants to refer to Martin Grossman's work on scanning, they know where to look. And it's Ooh. going to be there and you can use the control F and you can find what you're looking for. But I want it all in one place. And so over the next few months, I might release a couple of additional kind of smaller snippets that take some of the little things that I peppered in there like this concept of dead zones that I really, really like that I think you and I should talk about actually, because I think you'd really like it too okay, when it yeah. comes to drills and like, you know, the TNTP test is something that I coined for this, for this piece that I think is actually really important and really useful and all these other things. Probably make a couple additional blog posts just about those because I think they're so important. But fundamentally, this was just something that for me felt like a dissertation. This is what we were talking about when I was at the supermarket. Like, yeah, this is the type of amongst, thing where amongst other things, yes. Oh. If yes, correct. If, if no, but well, we won't talk about that. If if we won't, like, like if I put this out to the world, 
and no one read it, I would have actually been very, very fine with that because it was something that, like a dissertation, I didn't really expect anybody to sit down and read 35,000 words of things that I have to say because why would you? Yet the reaction, again, has been super positive and super exciting and motivating and, and wonderful to see. But the thing for me was like I wanted to put together something that was comprehensive, that did the topic justice, and now I can go back to writing things that are hopefully more economical. And maybe, yeah. actually, for all the people that have said, Martine, this is 5,000 words, so long. Like Now that they see my next 5,000 word one, they're going to be like, woo, <laughs> this is a short one. This is yeah, you're crazy. managing the expectations. Of course, exactly. You know what most of these people actually do is just like not <laughs> leave and just not read this uh, 33,000 word one. But hey, I like your optimism. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, again, a lot of a lot of the internet is sharing and retweeting things without even looking at the anything beyond yeah. the the headline, right? And if know. that's the case, that's 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 okay. I mean, thanks for sharing. But I whatever I works, man. Yeah. This is just I'm something sure that there I, are I wanted. That are reading it. Yeah. Believe yeah. it or not, I've had people like quote me from deep in the article, which is surprising. Yeah. I'm I'm like, being serious. I mean, I I know there's. I mean, I've. I haven't gotten through this one yet, obviously. Um, you can take read, a week or so. Yeah, just read, read it in installments. Last, I read your last one on JDP. I mean, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are enjoying it like I am. So, thanks, man. Uh, I, I can only hope. But I, again, this is the type of thing where I'm plugging it here and now. If you want to find it, soccer detail on Twitter. You can find it basically littered all over my page. Um, Carl Marius Oxum, who's the PhD student of Yair Yuda, who's the big Norwegian professor, research scientist, and the modern godfather of scanning research, whatever. Um, he he tweeted back at me, and we corresponded a little bit, like sent a message back and forth. I told him, I said, hey, I wrote this thing, you're included, whatever. And he said some really kind words. Again, those types of that type of reinforcement is great to see, and I, I love engaging with that type of thing and finding people. You know, there was a guy that is a pretty big coach on Twitter as well, who I I had put some of his tweets actually in the article because he's been talking about scanning since like 2010. Coach Dan Wright, and I sent him a message that said, "Hey, you know." I know you've been a big fan of this topic for a very long time. I included some of the stuff that you tweeted way back when, blah, blah, blah. And he said, he sent me this long message that was very kind. And he said, you know, actually there's even some points in the article that I would disagree with, but you know, that's the whole point. And I love yeah. that. That's, that's, that's what I love, right? Like yeah, I want, cool, I man. want people, if they see something and they're like, you know what, this guy's an idiot. I want you to tell me, like, I want to at least have yeah. the discourse and I want to talk about it. And so that's what I think I was most excited by is like people asking questions and people, um, not good. only just being like, you know, oh, this is cool, but also I want to learn more about this or I, I want to understand more of the data behind this or the sources, things like that. I mean, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So yeah, I, I often respect people who disagree more than people who just, because it's easy to say, oh, this is great. But, you know, if you actually disagree with the point on it, it shows you're, you know, reading it, thinking about it. And uh, yeah, that's good stuff. It's, it's honestly probably an even better compliment that someone would take the time to. Oh, yeah construct oh, an argument actually, against when yours I, when, when i'm coaching and like one of my players like actually disagrees with something i say or tell them like the happiest moments i have out there that's great that could be an episode that. unto itself frankly the, yeah. the importance of getting your players to not do what you say yeah i well, mean that, dude, that's I, lovely I, I still make the do what i say but <laughs> with that with that since that way we can keep the 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 bleeps in the post uh editing whatever all in one place. I got to ask you one final question before we head oh, into. I, well, I, I saw this on the outline, but at this point, this has, anyway. 
we kind of probably have to call the half after this and just do the entire rest of the material in the second half, right? We've we've got to call full time after this, man. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to ask you the question. Okay. We're going to go to the half and then we're going to economical, economic Um, second half. Look, look, you, you have an extra word in this quote. Uh, Here, look at the outline. I fixed it for you. Ah, you're right. All right. Are you ready? I'm going to ask you the important question here. Okay. Will. So what? No fake ZD then? Oh, you still got it wrong, you idiot. No! Um, no, I didn't even realize. Oh, you're right. So what? ZD then? Okay, yeah. whatever. I messed it up. Yeah. Um, as anyone who <laughs> recognizes that quote will know, I guess. Yeah, uh, I just started watching The God... No, not The Godfather. Jesus. Oh, you oh, messed it up too? Oh, they, okay, so they... They talked about the Godfather in the first episode of the show, and that just like that fried right. my brain on this stuff. I'm like, I, I can't get it out of my head now. Uh, the Sopranos, which is like the Godfather, but 20 years later in an HBO show. Um, and it's it's pretty great. I don't know. I've always been, I guess, you know, f- it. We're, we're, we've lost the curse already. I've always been like a very pretentious <laughs> about like TV and the kind of TV that I watch. Oh, you um, have. But I, for many I, years, I yeah, it's it's a big part of my character, and like I I'm I still am. I'm not backing down from that. I'm like yeah, I, I I I'm not watching any trash television, right? I have some problems, <laughs> and, um, but it's like very I, I, very pretentious. But carry on. Oh well, no, and like I I understand. I understand. Uh, you know, not everyone has as much time to watch TV and care about how good it is as I do. And but you, you know, have good taste. I don't know. I I have, I have great taste. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> You know, like it was it was hard to be this much of an elitist because I always felt like I was lying to myself a little bit because like I, I hadn't watched like a lot of like the old like classic shows, I guess, like, you know, Sopranos or like The Wire, I guess Mad Men are all things that I've kind of been working through recently. And Sopranos is the last one to get to. Mm-hmm. And it's great. You know, I, I I'm only two episodes in, so I, I can't talk about it that much. Uh, so you start, but I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. I know Martine, you're what almost done now. You you I'm halfway started. through season six B. You started oh, like my. what a month ago? Less? No, 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 no. I I started back when I was still in Ann Arbor, so it's it's okay. been like all summer. But I feel like I mean, you take a break when you were watching. We can talk about the other show you were watching too. Have you uh have you finished Leftovers yet? No, so my, I, I, I'm currently wait. I have my hands in too many pots. So I was, I watched mm. like half of Atlanta yeah. with my girlfriend, and then we watched half of Search Party, and then I was watching The Sopranos, and then we were watching, uh, I was watching The Leftovers because you had recommended it, and I'd put Sopranos on pause because I was watching with my family, but then I ended up leaving the house before we finished the show, and yeah. we watched what was basically the worst thing ever, which was The Flight Attendant on HBO. Oh my god, what a nightmare of a television show that was. Like, there it's were... a Max original or something? <laughs> yeah. Kaylee Cuoco, who I didn't like in The Big Bang Theory, and I didn't particularly like in this either, but I we I mean, I watched Twin Peaks season season uh, one, yeah. two, and three all over that's, again. That's like, a fun one, yeah. So, so like, I was just watching too many things at once. And so I think right now I'm just trying to like knock them actually off. I'm going to watch Search yeah. Party later tonight with Caroline. I'm going to watch The Sopranos the rest of this week and going to the next week and finish it. And Will, I'm one, overjoyed that you're watching it because somebody of your Aww. taste, maybe, I don't know, what are your some of your favorite TV shows? Because everybody listening to this is like, oh, this guy says he has a good taste, but he hasn't seen three of the most infamous shows of all time. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I mean, I'd say The Wire, which I watched last year, has definitely worked its way into my top. Uh, Mad Men, I'm still not quite finished with. I don't know if it's going to end up in the very high tier. Speaking of The Wire, actually, um, you, you haven't watched that, right? No, but I know what happened recently. It's horrible. Yeah, it's it's very sad. He's my favorite character on the show. He's been my favorite character on a couple other shows he's been in as well. Fantastic actor, uh, Michael K. Williams. But yeah, that I guess the wire has kind of been on my mind today because of that. Um, but the leftover. Well, I mean, it's similar. A similar thing, interestingly enough, happened also with The Sopranos with James Gandolfini passing away. I mean, that's something too that like. Yeah. It and actually, years ago, but is uh, I, I mean, devastating for that fan base interesting connection there um so you know the night of you have watched this show yes Ron, yes uh, michael michael k williams is in this yep and james gandalfini was actually supposed to be the lead of this show but he died uh right before oh you're kidding me i didn't know that yeah. he was he was and gonna that's... be a detective uh or the oh, the lawyer my... the lawyer yeah Wow, I didn't know that, and and that's the show that give Riz, that gave Riz Ahmed his big yes. first thing, right? Was, oh my yeah. god, yeah, that was I think that was his. I mean, it was his first like role of any weight whatsoever. I mean, and that show was phenomenal too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that's a good one. Like I said, uh, The Leftovers is another one of my favorite shows that I finally roped Martine into watching. Yes, I, that I was our. When I started, it's it's a very hard sell because I don't feel like I can say anything about what makes it good without just like completely spoiling what makes it good. And it yeah. like it definitely starts. Um, I won't say badly, but not. It doesn't start in the same place it finishes. And you know, it's 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 a bit. I don't know. How how did you feel watching the first season? I felt like I was always intrigued, but there definitely were times where I'm like, am I like still enjoying this? Like every moment of it. Oh. I mean, I think that The Leftovers actually, as far as I am right now, ha- there's a lot of similarities to Twin Peaks in a different way. Like Twin Peaks is just so nostalgic and I love it. I mean, Twin Peaks is one of my absolute favorites. I, I Obviously, oh, yeah. season three was like utterly, utterly, utterly bizarre, but I just, I adore that show. Yeah. But what, they're what, similar. Did all, what did it all mean, Martin? I'm asking, wait, well, that's the, the thing. So, so, so fundamentally, the thing about Twin Peaks was basically like this idea that David Lynch, the director, he's come out in interviews and talked about this plenty of times where he said like, listen, people always come up to me and ask me why there's so much weird stuff going on in every single one of the things that I produce. And fundamentally my response is basically that in life, so many weird things happen. We go to the cinema and we expect there to be like a very linear explanation of things. There to be a a plot arc and for all the scenes to all contribute to something. It's like, that's not life. Who has time for that? That's stupid. life is full of extraneous information that you have no idea what to do with. And that's David Lynch's philosophy. And man, do you see that in twin peaks? You see so much stuff that you're just like, did this have a place in it at all? And the answer is no. But when you look at the leftovers, it's kind of a twist on that, which is this idea that the leftovers, you start off the first season, you don't understand anything. The second season, you still basically don't understand anything. And I think what I'm starting to understand is that this is a show about having more questions than you do answers and that that might oh, just be fuck. wholly the message yeah, yeah, from yeah. this because it's, it's definitely because that's tied life. In. It's, it's definitely tied in to what i think the overarching message of the show is at least and i'm very excited for you to finish so we can actually talk about this because i think and i'm excited you, you, for you, you to t- get past yeah, you touched on some very good stuff there i think that that is one of the big questions of the show and maybe the biggest one you'll find out in a little bit here um, good but- it's good. I'm yeah, excited I, for you to get past the the ducks episode and the baked ziti or the ugh, the effing ziti, but yeah. I mean, I, I will just say this: I'm 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 finishing up this show right now, 
And mm-hmm. there, I, I think I looked at like the IMDb ratings and whatever about the different seasons. And you know how like Breaking Bad, for instance, like kind of crescendos and just like hits just like perfect nine, nine, yeah. eights, nine, nines, tens. Which, which for the, it does. Like I season mean, four, season five, it just gets better and better and better. Yeah. The Sopranos. That's, that's in terms the of, main strength of Breaking Bad. Yeah. Correct. They they crescendo it perfectly. But if you look at at Sopran at the Sopranos, it's like I think the best ratings come in like season three and four. But I'm watching these episodes in season six with mm-hmm. my mouth agape, just masterful. And the play and the characters are so complex and so have such refined depth and the dialogue. This is the thing that you won't appreciate probably until season. Th- three maybe you probably mm-hmm. will, it will probably take you two seasons to appreciate that these just characters I'm, just because i'm slow probably because you're living <laughs> under a rock but it's it's okay. the type of thing where these characters are made out to kind of be like you know these dumb mafia guys that whatever have these all these vices and whatever and i'm sure you've already seen yeah. that but the dialogue between these characters if you take a moment to just read the dialogue or just to listen carefully is so clever and so yeah. well written and you know so what, well you know what i really like about it too they they throw in a lot of references to other stuff in their dialogue at least in the first couple episodes i always Correct. really like when shows do that it makes it feel much more real because like a lot of shows will like pretend that like other media just doesn't exist yeah, like you know, when these people are like actually, yeah, I, I really like that aspect of it. It feels um, if, it feels very genuine so far. If you, for the first if you two. like that, then you have plenty more coming because all the things like in the world that happen at the, I don't think I'm really spoiling anything, but things for instance like this, the Sopranos takes place in New Jersey and New York in, at the turn of the century, and mm-hmm. they. I mean, there's a, I mean, they talk about their 9 11 happens and they, and that is part of an episode and they talk about the implications of the war on terror and stuff and things like that. Like they, exactly what you're saying is what they do. And they take things that yeah. legitimately happen in real life and make you think that this could have actually just been a really affluent family that was living in New Jersey and that they, that's Ooh. like what, you know, like and that's what happened. That. Can you do that voice again for me? But say something else. <laughs> no, but there are a man. And the other thing too, it's so unbelievably qu- quotable. There are some episodes that like, mm. I don't know. I got my parents hooked on it too. And my dad won't stop making references to it. Every, oh. everything he sends to our family group chat now is just a Sopranos reference. Like it's, oh, it's just, it's, it's just, but it's prime for that. Like it's, there's some episodes too that I just think back at and I'm just like, what an utterly magnificent episode. And right now I'm getting to the end. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just the type of thing where so many things are happening and so many loose ends are being tied. And it's just one of those things where I'm just like, I'm getting ready for this finale. Yeah. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be devastated when it's, you're over. not ready for it to be over though. Yeah. Well, so, I already know how it ends, actually. I think most people probably will. Oh, my God. Don't tell me. Do not tell me. I don't care oh. what you say. Do not tell me really? how it it's ends. Like, oh, don't, okay. No, I'm taking out my okay. headphones. Literally, don't ruin I, it for well, me. I'm, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just saying, like, I thought it's like, I thought it was, like, pretty commonly known. It's a big, okay, like, well, shut... thing with the ending. Listen, is. Anyway, I, I, this I'll, is I, like... won't, I won't talk. Yeah. I don't like. Will okay. this is like when when Liverpool plays and you record the game <laughs> and you're like, guys, do not text the group chat. Yeah, because no, I want to watch the game. I actually, I actually just started muting the group chat because I, I can't trust you people at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's what I'll say on the topic of finishing a season. Um, let's go into our halftime break. Honestly, okay. I'm okay. And yeah. let's regroup, get some water, and let's talk about the episode because I don't know what we're gonna title this. Hodgepodge, uh, bagage. I don't know what 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 this is yeah. gonna be. Hodgepodge, unless we. Bagage. That's what we signed <laughs> up for. 
unless we bring it back to the topic, the, the discussion du jour. Um, and I want to do that because as much as I think this might be a half-baked concept, I think what we're going to talk about today is actually something that has legs and oh, maybe our more intelligent listeners, people that are more intelligent than we are, can come up with even cleverer ways to implement it. Yeah. So if, if, if any of that, you are still around after this. <laughs> with that, Will, you're going to have to listen to that entire intro to just find needles in the haystack of curse words. No, 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 I, no. I don't know. I, we, we, kept it, we kept it bunched. We got, yeah, I got... <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> your head in your hands. <laughs> oh my god! I did um, tell you you could curse as much, but this is this has been mostly me, to be honest. Um, yeah, this is self-inflicted wounds. Can we just can we just stop? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this up. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. We're going to talk some really exciting economics, which I know is something titillating. That word alone just probably the hairs on your arms are standing I'm up for all of our listeners. I'm going to have to censor that too. Um, that is... <laughs> that is... Uh, yeah, you probably will. Um, we're going to talk about economics. We're going to talk about decision theory. We're going to talk about a, a, a psychological fallacy that, um, as I like to do on Touchline Theory, is the type of thing that many people will look at and think it's a really bad thing, and everybody will probably agree with that until... You and I will suggest that maybe, just maybe, it can be good. So with that, we'll catch you on the other side of the break. Yep. Uh, I, I guess we're back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's right. After... 45 minutes of stoppage time at the end of the first. <laughs> the players have rallied themselves. <laughs> That's an insane, um, insane comparison. Come back out for the second period here. I'm I'm subbing myself off at 60 minutes. So let's make this quick, Martin. <laughs> Will has decided to have his best first half of his entire career and then proceed to simply assume that that's how you win a game and not yeah. put any effort into the second half. That's, and that's while, correct. Yep. And while I uh, commend that, uh, I'm not sure what it is, um, we got an episode to get through. So we're going to get right to it. So this is a topic that, as I'm sure you can tell, Will had more fun talking about FSG and those types of things. But this is something that actually was inspired by Will himself. And so that'll be an interesting thing for us to reflect upon. Um, oh, no. But <laughs> let's, so let's, uh, we're going to dive right in. Okay. So today's let's discussion finds itself at the intersection, as I alluded to previously, of behavioral economics, decision theory, and sport, which is three of some of the most interesting things I think that you can look into if you're listening to this episode, you probably find intrigue in all of those things just like I do. Um, and so what I want to talk about today is incentivization. I want to start by talking about incentivization in soccer as a coach in training and practice. Um, sure, yeah. And we will move into kind of the more mm, countercultural take that Will may not believe so much in, but I think there's actually potential in. So okay, incentivization, what, what do I mean by that? So incentivization is the art of hanging the carrot at the end of the pole. Okay, it is the way in which we choose to reward no. players for certain actions that allow us to teach them things in a way that we want to do so mm -hmm. and so 
the, the the crux of incentivization is basically this idea that humans respond positively to things like rewards. And so let's say hypothetically, if you were to do something correct in a training session, you might earn a point for it. If you score a goal, which is the act of putting a paneled leather into a PVC framed uh, uh, rope, uh, <laughs> rope constellation. If you do that thing, then you earn something in, in return. And, and the, you know, the things that you earn, like we said in the previous episode, you have to kind of believe in them. You have to think that the points carry some value, but they do. When you're being competitive and you're playing in athletics, everybody knows that a point is something that gets you one step closer to victory, right? I'm sure you can agree with that too, Will. Sure, yeah. And so the idea with incentivization is that a lot of people think that this is a clear-cut science that yeah. there are, you know, you give a point for a goal because that's what you do in a real game and you need to reflect what you do in a real game in a training. And a yep. lot of coaching licensing bodies will agree with that. And mm -hmm. they will say they that you should, you should never give points for something that isn't a goal if you hypothetically were to have an entire session designed around something that isn't scoring goals and you wanted to reward them for doing that thing that you want them to learn and do, you still can't give it to them because it's not a goal. There's people that believe that. You need that PVC, uh, what did you call it? PVC rope constellation? Yeah. Correct. I'll have to, I'll have to, that might be like, you know, a, a motto of this show. I don't uh, know how it would. Maybe not that far. Yeah. <laughs> You can put it put in your tome of terms or whatever. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Hey, you're not allowed to talk about articles before they come out. Thank you very much. Well, you keep, already talked about that. Keep those lips uh, tightly zipped, my friend. We, I swear you talked about tome of terms like on the fourth oh episode my, of this we're podcast. Gonna to, we're going to have to bleep that out. This is an no. equivalent to a curse word. No, 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 no. All right. Yeah, Even if we bleep it out, go back, listen to episode <laughs> four near the end. You can find it there. Oh, here's the deal. With incentivization, I'm of the opinion that instead of this being an, an objective truth, I think that we can actually really manipulate this however we want to create a different levels of encouragement within an activity. I think it's really a bit of an art form. And I take that to the fullest extent because if you've read anything on touchline theory or now this thing that I just put on soccer detail that has is full of this type of toying with different levers within incentivization possibilities, you're going to find that I give points for a lot of different things. And I have specific values that I attribute to things. And some people are going to argue that that makes it hard for the players to understand what's happening. And that's happened to me in my own personal coaching yeah. career. But others will see that as something that is maybe a little bit more refined. And I think it's something that allows us to elicit things that just attributing one point for one goal can sometimes not allow. And so I want to get into that. Okay. Yeah. Higher resolution. Yeah. Yes. So resolution is actually a really interesting concept that comes with this. But one of the things that I want to talk about, I'm going to do a quick case study on uh, one of the drills that I actually shared in the soccer detail piece, which is called reroute. So reroute is all about basically learning how to effectively switch the point of attack. Okay. okay. So it's a game in which you want to teach players how to take a pass from the center back and dish it out to the fullback take a ball from the wide midfielder and play it into the striker take a ball from the center back find your striker take a ball from the left side find the right side it's all about pivoting like that right mm -hmm. and so the idea of reroute is it's, it's this idea i want it to be about pivoting that's the high level kind of skill that we're acquiring but but even more fundamentally this entire article is on scanning it's on visual exploration and visual 
perception, exploratory uh, behaviors. And so what I really, really want the players to do is not just, you know, win the game. I don't want them just to score goals. I want them to score goals as a result of having done the behavior that I want them to do. And that behavior is having heads on a swivel, having what I call owl-like necks throughout the progression of play, checking with recency and frequency and these things that I talk about in this piece. And I want to reward the players that do that. Yeah. And I want to give them the chance to earn points for those behaviors as well as for behaviors that lead to proper progression and build up and get you closer to scoring goals and you score. Yes. Okay. And so that's the crux of it, right? So here's the idea. With reroute, we start with effectively a little bit more than half the field. So if you imagine we had scissors and we took the field and we cut it at the center circle, at the like the bit that goes onto the other team's half. So our end line going to the half and then some, just including the entire center circle. So we snip it there, right? Okay. And so if we look at the rest of the field, then the idea is there's some specific geometry that isn't super important. Um, but the, the main idea is you have this zone and this zone spans across the half spaces and the central strip. And it's positioned like above your 18, a little bit sort of between the center circle and your 18. You could imagine it's roughly maybe the same size as your 18, but it's a rectangle. And it's the type of thing that you could draw a bounding box around like Liverpool's three eights and you could have them mm -hmm. all inside of it, right? So in the starting position sure. when they kick yeah. off. Okay. And so the idea, again, is like we want to teach these players. One of the big skills here is like a player that is able to dip back into pockets of, of space and be able to kind of like emerge and progress the ball with that, right? So like players, mm -hmm. you can think of Verratti or you could think of Wijnaldum for you guys in the past. That, that progress the ball and, and that type of thing. So the whole goal is, you know, you need scanning to make that effective because a lot of these players, uh, people will look at it and be like, oh, they're technically so proficient, but it's really just this perceptive diligence. They're just always looking. They're always checking their blind side as they dip into these pockets. And it's not just like at one moment. It's like they check, they start to move into the space, they observe, they check, they go back, they receive the ball, they check yeah. before the ball gets them. And and that kind of decision-making is really the real skill. Because I mean, you, you watch a soccer game, you like look at the individual passes they make. Like I, I could make a lot of those passes, but I can't do it at anywhere near the speed or I can't position myself like these guys do is this decision-making stuff. It, it, it's crucial. So yeah, a good, good thing to be teaching. So couldn't agree more. And yeah. I think that, so the question becomes with this drill, right? These are hard things to isolate because they're very intangible, right? Well, I mean, like I'm sure I know this is something that I tweeted about this week. Like when you look at one V ones, one V ones, not that hard to make a drill for finishing, not that hard to make a drill for routine keeper nope. saves, not that hard, but, looking keeping your head up uh, that's a really kind of flimsy thing to grasp and so how do you do it right and so one way is through clever incentivization so in this game hypothetically one thing that i've stipulated is that if a team is possess has the ball and is trying to attack the what is basically the half so at the half line you know how i told you we snipped it there's two goals positioned in the half spaces okay mm -hmm. So we're trying to attack that. And the other team who's attacking the full goal is trying to attack the full goal. So while one team is basically playing in our half, we're practicing playing deep, you know, in our own. So the yes. concept is like, okay, I want to overload scanning. And so one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to say, if a player receives a ball and then is able to advance the ball at a 90 degree angle 
with respect to the entry point of the rectangle that that pass originally came through, they earn one point. Okay, that's my starting point. So let's say okay. you're a six, role play exercise. You're a six, you dip back oh. into, into a pocket to receive a ball from your center back and you dish it out to Trent. That's oh. a 90 degree transaction. And some great role play. I love that. And so don't get too titillated. So the idea is that that type of thing typically requires a certain amount of visual perception because you need to be able to know because the big thing here is that you can only do this with two touches. Ooh. Okay. So with two touches to do that, you can't really, you don't really have much time, right? Because you've highlighted this zone that now earns you points. So you're going to be pressured in that zone by the opponent because they don't want to let you score those points. And so mm -hmm. now when you're getting in here, people know that you have the opportunity to get something out of it. And so you're going to have tighter pressure. It's going to be more of a challenge. And in order to do this successfully, you're going to want before you get into this valuable space to be monitoring the potential opportunities so that when you do get in there, you can capitalize on the opportunity, right? Yeah. So that's one point. We're just going to start simple. It's one point. So now. Okay. Excited to hear the interesting parts. Yeah. What comes after this? What comes after this? What is even more challenging than advancing the ball? Maybe let's say at 90 degrees. Uh, 180 degrees. Excellent. Perhaps? I, I always knew you were good at math. So yeah. the, the next step up from this is being able to legitimately switch the field, be that left to right, right to left, or be that back to front, right? Mm -hmm. We really, really value players that can take the ball from deep and then advance it quickly into the feet of attackers, breaking lines, things like that. Right. Yeah. We also value players that are able to keep things moving laterally and shift the field until we find openings, right? Those are both really valuable things. Well, well, some some people value those players. Other people say they're bad and only pass sideways. But yeah, you know, are you talking good. about about Miralem Pjanic? The uh, I'm talking about Jor Jordan Henderson. Actually, is <laughs> un unfairly labeled as a very boring player for years and years. But he yeah. would do very well actually in this exercise. Let me tell you. Um, yeah. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> but let's say hypothetically there are people out there that value p players that are able to switch the field, right? Okay. I, I certainly do. And so what I'm proposing in this exercise is now I say, okay, I think that doing a 180 switch with two touches requires more visual perception, right? Because instead of just looking kind of in, in one direction at a 90 degree angle, which might just be encompassed by your periphery, now you got to really turn and check over your shoulder. Because if yeah. I'm receiving a pass from my center back, I have to be able to look and know where the pressure is. Is it possible for me to find a target? If I'm getting the ball from the left, I want to be able to, you know, peek and look to see if there's an option on the right because I got to play fast. And now that we're adding something with even more points, there's going to be even more people looking to prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. And so here the question becomes, okay, how do I value that action? When I look at this as a drill designer, if you will, I, I gave the 90 degree thing one point. What would you attribute the 180 degree? Would you give it one point? Well, I, I guess if we're continuing this role play, if I'm doing this, uh, it's twice as hard. Give it two points, maybe. Okay. That You're obviously pandering to the direction in which I'm taking it. But what are your thoughts? If, if, if you had I, I these think two gonna, things save my thoughts on the overall point stuff for the end. But I mean, if you're, if you're doing it this way with points, I think, yeah, two points, two points is reasonable for this. You know, it's twice the angle, you know, I, I could, I could be convinced on three, but and probably one of those two. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that when I had originally designed this at the very, very beginning, I had done three and I brought it back down to two. And I felt as though two was a lot more intuitive for the players. Like you said, twice the angle, 
twice the ostensible difficulty, twice the number of points. One, two makes. I think it's a simple, nice progression. One, two. Okay. Again, it's all this. There's a bit of an art to this. It's like you have to have a reasoning behind why you're choosing these things. But now the question becomes. Item number three here is I actually want to promote strong progression because these things, switching the field, don't mean anything if they aren't just a precursor to strong attack and destabilizing the opposition and penetrating. It doesn't matter if you penetrate if you don't actually score at the end, right? Like you want to actually put the ball in the back of the net. And so the goals that are situated, the too many goals in the half spaces are targets for that or the big goal the other team is scoring on. Mm -hmm. And so the question now becomes, okay, now what? What number of points would you attribute to a team scoring there? Start us off somewhere, and I'll and we'll we'll logic our way through it. Three, four. I don't know. Okay, so why would you why would you do three hypothetically? That's it's one more than the other two options, and uh, I don't know keeps keeps things simple, I suppose. But I mean, a goal is much harder than a switch of play, so that would be four. I guess. Uh, I, I think. You've, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head already. So three, the merits of three are what? It's very intuitive, right? It's the type of yeah. thing where you explain it to the team in thirty seconds. You can really get that down. Three is like it makes it just makes perfect sense. They don't have to think too much more, right? But the question becomes now, and this is where the art comes in. It's the balancing act of getting the activity right, of envisioning the activity, of doing a role play yourself while you're designing it and trying to make it make sense, make it not lopsided. Imagine a team who gets one point for 90, two points for 180, and three for scoring. Mm -hmm. Is there really any incentive to push to score a goal? If you can play a ball from a center back to a midfielder to a wide back and then switch the field and get the same number of points, does that distort the reality of the game too much? Yes, it does. But does the switching a goal to being worth four points or five points fundamentally change that? So it's an excellent uh, question. I, I don't really it, think so. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. So my, my argument here is basically, I think three is too low for that reason. I think that when I envision what the game would look like, I, I don't want scoring to be the same as a ball from a center back to put to one side and then brought back and brought over to another. That's one point plus two points. It's three. That feels too easy and too routine. And if a team isn't pressing hard enough, then the, it's just going to totally mess up the game. I think mm -hmm. four points is equally kind of not ideal because now you just switch the field from right to left and left to right. And you have four points. Why would you ever score? Why would you ever push to threaten them okay. where their best defenders are? It doesn't make sense. You just keep doing that. Yeah. And that just becomes stupid. But five now five, you have to go from center back to midfielder, from midfielder to the wide player, across the field, and then back. And at that point, I think if you are able to chain together that behavior in this in the in this circumstance of this exercise, where the player that's orchestrating it has to always do it two touches, is under pressure, is scanning, at that point, it's like I'm okay with it. And you can argue about the specific threshold, but for me, five was the number that I went with. So what's 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 the purpose of this drill? And you say it's is it just for the scanning or is it to scan, switch the field, and then score a goal? Like what what exactly are you trying to get out of this? What's the, the main focus? Entire focus is that this is a scanning session. The scanning session is okay. is disguised as being something that practices switching the point of attack and fundamentally in order to make it realistic and have <laughs> something that okay. feels like a real incentive. Well, you I'm, gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip this then. You know, you you said that if 
if there's not this incentive, if a goal is only worth three, there's no incentive to score. And if you make a goal worth five, then maybe there's not an incentive to do the scanning stuff. That's excellent. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I have issue with this kind of drill planning, I guess, and getting this far into the details of points. I'm a, when it comes to incentivization, I'm a traditionalist. I bring a box of carrots and a big stick to every practice and nothing else. Um, but I love that. With, with these games, it's like when you have this many ways to score, I mean, in my experience, one thing this leads to is a lot of distraction. It's, it's a lot of arguments. People are like, oh, well, that, that was only worth one point, not two. And as players try to do a lot of math and not really sure like what exactly is going on in the game, especially at a younger age level, um, this is a lot to deal with. And I, I think, too, I mean, it, it brings these challenges where, you know, sometimes, you know, like you, you may have switched the field very, very well opened up a great opportunity for a goal. But like you said, maybe in the context of the drill, even though the thing in the context of the game, the best thing to do would be go for goal. Maybe the context of the drill, the best thing to do to score points is like, oh, well, I have these two very easy switch passes on. I know I can complete. I'll just go back and do that instead. And then you're not getting the players to do what you want them to do. And I think, I don't know, if, if I were to design something like this, something I, I like a lot more and structuring this for the points is let's say, I mean, you want to teach the scanning thing. Sure. We'll keep that. We'll keep one point for 90 degree switch, two points for 180 degree switch, but maybe instead of like giving a point for a goal, just to keep it simple and keep it so that the one thing you get points for in the exercise is still the one thing we're focusing on where there's not two things you can be doing that distract the focus. What if instead of a goal being worth points on its own, what if just at the end of the sequence, you have to score to cash in the points and you got from the scanning. Something like that. I, I absolutely love that. I think, yeah. Will, frankly, what you've brought up, you've brought up a sequence of excellent points. First and foremost, we talked about this briefly in the first portion of this podcast. Your disagreement here is, is, is something that I have heard from certain people, but not necessarily phrased in the way that you just have. And I think your argument is incredibly cogent. I think you're totally right. One of the things that I've all, I've definitely seen in my experience is that sometimes the complexity is too much and that it distracts. And you're entirely right that if players are trying to do math on the field, think about Weston McKinney. You if, never have to do that. And again, you might, you know, in a maybe, game, a goal, a goal is always the best option. I don't think that's 100% right. Practice. Yeah. One of the things that you brought up additionally, a fantastic point. The idea that this in and of itself can introduce unnatural dynamics. One of the things that I talked about a lot in the piece is that there's this drill that's basically like a rondo, but it's all about finding the the escape ball, right? And all about receiving a ball and then scoring in your blind side. And you have defenders that are going to be going around you in your blind side that you have to keep track of because you can only score with two touches anyway. Yeah, I, I remember one, that one. Yeah. One of the things about that drill that I talked about in great detail is, and you've hit it the nail on the head with this, is this idea of do you give points for the players in the middle for doing the rondo in and of itself. So the rondo persists in the center and you have goals that you need to score in all around the rondo, basically. And you have defenders, you have two defenders in the middle. Let's say the rondo has eight or nine players. And around you, there's like these sharks in a moat. There's like five defenders. And there's a couple, there's like eight goals that the defenders can cover, but they can't cover all of them. And so while you're doing the rondo, you're always trying to scan and check your shoulder to see, ooh, can I turn really quickly and score in one of these goals, right? One of the dilemmas I ran into was initially I said, okay, well, Rondo, Rondo works. How? Well, you 10 passes is a point or something like that. Or maybe you have no incentive. It's just that if you lose, then you go into the center and you're a defender, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to get into that shortly. But one of the 
things that I contemplated was I was like, okay, imagine if I were to give points for scoring a goal and also points for passes, right? Hypothetically, yeah. in this incentivization thing, what happens now? I'm a player that receives the ball. Loads of passes. Yeah. Well, I'm a player that receives the ball and I have a clear cut opportunity to escape and get out of this area, but I'm on my ninth pass. And if yeah. I'm, my I'm on my ninth pass, a simple, stupid ball is going to suddenly become more valuable than yeah. escaping and, pressure. And this, this is what I'm getting at. I mean, it's just, it, it teaches the wrong things. And like, you know, I, I don't, if the drill is good and properly designed, then you don't need points for doing the rondo because the the benefit you get from doing the rondo is by moving the ball around quickly by changing this you make it easier for yourself to score goals and the same thing with the scanning thing it's like the idea is not that oh we're trying to do this so you can get points we're trying to do this so you can make it easier to score i think you know player players can get tied up in that too in the way it's presented because if you know if there's been like oh we're going to switch the field so that we can get two points and that's like oh well this is just practice coach is just having us do this i don't really see how this applies but if we take the points away from that and instead you get the points for scoring a goal but then you know you still focus on that in the drill and like they'll start to see instead of just getting points from this they're like oh this is actually making it easier for us to get points doing the other way maybe they can see the value in that more when it's not just tied to these abstract points that they can win during practice I couldn't be I couldn't be more delighted with your response so I'll have you know that I'm sure you'd, you'd be delighted to know that in that exercise that the other one not the one not reroute like we're talking about but rather mm -hmm. uh, valve rondo in that one yeah. uh i give no points for connecting passes in the middle because i actually yeah. followed the exact line of logic that you said the idea that you can actually just incentivize by showing that by doing this little thing that in the game will not get you any inherent value you can get much closer to the thing that is of value and so it, frankly i frankly i think that what you've just mentioned is fantastic you're completely right that the idea of another I'm, another yeah, alternative of course <laughs> another alternative <laughs> idea here could be you just cash in the points by scoring you don't get more points and i love that but the fundamental thing that i'll turn this back on to you with is that all of this conversation we've had just now that i think frankly we should do this with every drill that goes on touchline theory and we should work through it and discuss and argue proves that incentivization is an art that different people are going to look at it differently that different people are going to have different perspectives as to how to make it the most effective and even you and i by just talking right now i want to go back and take that piece that i just published and make a slight tweak to it because i think what you just brought up is an artistic flavor that changes it that makes it even better and so when Aww. i look at that thanks martin when i, when I look at that <laughs> I want to take this, right? And I want to propose the fact that individually, when we think about this art of incentivization and we try to do it the best that we can on our own, sometimes we might not get it perfect, just like I obviously did just now. And so, or didn't rather just now. Yeah. And so, and you know, it's, it's, it's not even a one-sided thing. It's like, you know, we're talking about getting it perfectly from the incentivizer side, but this is also something that every player is going to respond to differently. And what works best for one team or one player is going to be completely different than for another. So it's tough. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's a very kind of hand wavy. Oh, we don't, we don't know what's right kind of thing. And we don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's all an art. It's all an art. And, yeah. and so with that, what I want to propose is this thing that I was thinking about a couple of days ago that I know you have some qualms with, but based on how, honestly, how much I enjoyed you disagreeing with me just now, I think I will enjoy 
you disagreeing with me in the coming uh, verbal paragraphs too. The thing I was thinking about a couple of days ago, and I was listening to some other materials again with had to do more with like uh, decision theory economics. I like a lot of those types of podcasts. I think it's very interesting. Is this concept that there is a psychological fallacy, a, a pitfall that a lot of people succumb to that research has shown can have an even more impactful and even stronger uh, figurative driving force in terms of how we make decisions and how we respond to certain stimuli than the typical incentivization idea. So incentivization, right, as we've mentioned, is regardless of our specific where we put the carrot, how we tie the carrot to the stick, do we hit the kid with the steric, the, the, the carrot, all these different things. That's a tongue twister for you right there. I, we can talk yeah. about that for, for ages, right? But the question becomes now, we are doing all these things to do positive reinforcement for these players. And there's this concept, this massive concept that goes by the name of loss aversion. That is this idea that humans fundamentally have a tendency to unbalancedly respond to the prospect of losing something far more than they do the prospect of winning something. And so when yeah. I look at the way that we do this, our methodology that includes basically trying to teach players to do specific things and trying to take the carrot and hold it in front of them and guide them into the right place, the prospect of winning something that gets them to our learning objective. I was sitting and thinking to myself, I wonder if this thing, loss aversion, which we'll talk about in a second, has a ton of problems mm -hmm. in the way that it manifests itself in normal life. I wonder if we can actually take this and use it. And if it's really stronger, right? Some of these studies show that the fear of losing something can be twice as strong as the appeal of winning that same thing. Yeah. And just to like, I got like a concrete example of like what this is down. It's like, it, this is the idea that like, if most people are offered like a gamble where they can either win $50 or lose $50, they won't take it because the fear of losing $50 is bigger than I guess the satisfaction they would get from winning. And, you know, you know, when he says twice as strong, that means like, you know, maybe if it was moved up where you have a 50% chance of losing 50, 50% chance of like gaining a hundred, then maybe people start actually considering that. But there's a, there's added weight on the thing you already possess and are going to lose versus something that you stand to gain, I suppose. Absolutely. And yeah. the idea with that, right. And we can talk about some examples I think that are pertinent, just like that one. I think that's the easiest one. The easiest one is the $50 bill yeah. thing, right? I'm just like, I, some people might not know what this is at all. You know, I'm, oh. I wouldn't, if not were for some bizarre coincidence that I did an eighth grade science project on this exact thing. Um, but. You're totally right. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this. I, and your example is like the quintessential one, right? It's this idea that if mm -hmm. I went up to you and I told you that you could win $10 or I could take 10 from you, you're going to hear the second part and just kind of recoil a little bit more because $10, I mean, it's $10 to buy you lunch. But if you get $10 taken away, now you don't have lunch. And something about that feels darker and rainier and, and more threatening to our vitality. And this is the type of thing that actually manifests itself all across a bunch of different disciplines, right? It's something that happens a lot with, you mentioned gambling. I mean, another version of gambling is the stock market. So the stock market sees this idea of loss aversion in a very significant way. And this idea that a lot of people will prematurely sell off assets they have, or they won't sell them off fast enough 
because they're driven by this fear of losing what they have. And that fear, like many of these cognitive biases, can act, can cause you to act irrationally, can cause you to take data and information and that would otherwise go into a you know, an algorithm that is in your head and it would allow you to compute a resulting decision. And it just messes that up. It makes it into a black box <laughs> and it and it totally adjusts the way in which you're going from point A to point B. And so one example, another example that I know, again, we probably already disagree on is a more evolutionary example, which is this idea of if you're a hunter and gatherer human in more primitive era and you come across a unknown but hopefully yummy berry on the ground the the appeal of tasting that sweetness and the succulent juiciness of the berries uh, flesh does not remotely compare to the chance that fruit might be poisonous and kill us right uh, and yeah and so one thing that people have argued and i know you're gonna have a counterpoint to this but one thing that people have argued is that this fundamentally is something that has been cooked and cooked and cooked into our psyche that has said when you are it's a survival mechanism the losing you can't die by winning you can die by losing and that's the end and no one knows what happens and so when you are faced with a situation where you could have this yummy berry and it could be really yummy and tasty, but it could also kill you. It's like flavor doesn't matter that much, and neither does my sweet tooth. But I know you have a different point. So what's your what's your what's your uh, I mean, counter to this? It's, it's a berry. It's like you know it, they're just completely separate things. It's like I don't know if you had like a, a chance that like this berry was like going to give a few extra years to your life or something, then maybe that would be a loss aversion thing. But right now, it's just either you die or you get like a tiny snack. Like, of, of course, no one's going to take a risk at those odds. That has, that has nothing to do with this concept. I don't know. Okay. I, so I, you're, I don't so, think that's a great example. But. So you're right. So that's the that's something that I've seen cited in a lot of different uh, situations where people have explained this concept on podcasts and, and on the internet and things like that. I agree with you. I think that it's skewed because of the magnitude of the different incentives or the punishments. But if I were to say, by the same token, in a less of an extreme fashion, trying to bring it back, really, really hammer home the loss aversion thing and not make it about you know death or tastiness. What if it was just you were going to have a, a berry that was either going to be really yummy or really disgusting and bitter and yeah. gross? How do you feel about that? Do you take the berry? Do you eat the berry? Yeah. Well, here's here's how I'd compare it. You know, tying it to some more modern foods, a bit of, I don't know, less less hunter gatherer. It's like you ever you ever had these jelly beans that are like uh, <laughs> yeah mixed ones, where like yes. you don't know. And it's like I'll be honest, you know, the good flavors in that package they're better than the normal jelly beans, right? But I never in my life would I buy a pack of those for myself. <laughs> Because it's just, it's not worth it. I think that, yeah. that really gets to the heart of it. That's a good one. Um, uh, we, we went, we, we talked about Charles Darwin and evolution and we could have just talked about jelly beans. Yeah. Well, that's what it is, right? I, I take, I take the box that I know is going to be steady over one that, you know, is going to have something might, might have more good jelly beans than the other one, but also might have far fewer good jelly beans than the other one does it's a uh, it's a risk aversion right and it's a i think that in and of itself regardless of our you know uh, schrodinger's berry uh, i think fundamentally like you know it's it's something that has helped us continue to exist is this aversion to risk it's like hey hmm. 
is there a coin toss? I don't want to leave important things up to a coin toss. I'm not going to do it. If you have a lot of money in the balance and the stock market is crashing, do you bank on a on a on a rebound? Do you sell too quick because you're afraid you're going to lose everything? If you do that, then do you lose all your money because then it only goes up? All these different factors. And but the fundamental thing is this it's this weird motivating thing that causes us to act and make decisions in a way that can through the research and through what we feel intuitively yeah. with jelly beans have stronger emotions than just the incentives. And so what I'm trying to think about and what I will propose today and will likely get shot down very quickly because it's only really half baked and very quickly because we're running up on two hours on this episode already. I think what I'm going to propose that, but, um, is that I think that we can use loss aversion in the way in which we incentivize and actually de-incentivize uh, in our training sessions to make what could potentially be an even greater impact on the outcomes we get from training than the mere one point, two point, five point, blue point, whatever we really want to do with now, all of now that. It's, now it's negative blue point. <laughs> now we're talking negative blue point. So <laughs> let's start because I don't want to waste a second here. Let's start with the with the initial concept, right? Like you just said. Um, I'm going to introduce something. It's going to be hand wavy. It's going to be up in the air and we're going to talk about it. And that's the whole point. I'll, I'll shoot it out of the air. Don't you worry. So my proposition here as a concept, again, half baked, but perhaps someone out there that's smarter than we are can, can take this and, and run with it is this idea that instead of giving points, when good things happen, let's start with a pile of points and take them away. Okay. Yeah. And so just as we mentioned, Imagine Rondo. We talked about Rondo earlier. Imagine Rondo. And instead of 10 passes equals one point, forget the goals on the on the periphery. Let's just say it's just Rondo. 10 passes is a point. Because otherwise, what are you going to do? I would argue that if you were to say that there's no points in Rondo whatsoever, you just pass. And if you lose the ball, you go in the middle. Now you're actually doing something very inverted, which is trying to draw a link between punishment and defending. And some teams won't like the optics of that either. So let's say 10 passes is one point to the attackers, right? What if we were to flip that? and say that 10 passes is minus one point to the defense. Okay. And I know okay. it sounds abstract yeah. and there's probably people that are driving in their car right now. If they're even listening to this being like, okay, move it along. But what if 10 passes is negative one point to the defense? So here's my concept, right? The, def every, the defenders, everybody in the entire Rondo game, you have 10 players and you're playing a seven V three or whatever you want to do. Everybody starts with 10 points. And if you go in the middle, which is, not a punishment yet, unless you get scored on. When you get scored on, you get minus one. So you go down to nine, right? And so let's say that the first defender, let's say you don't start with 10, let's say you start with five or something like that. The first defender to hit zero then gets their standard punishment. Okay, but it's a little bit of an inversion, right? So, so my question is, how might that impact our activity? I know you're a cynic. I know you're a skeptic when it comes to this. But genuinely, if you, had to, if you had to put yourself in this situation, how does that change the way that this game is played? Um, I'll be honest. I think if you have a, a team that, you know, is like on top of things mentally, it, it wouldn't change it that much at all. I think, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't actually change the drill, right? It's just creative scorekeeping, but the, the scoring system still plays out the exact same as it would under the other thing. And I don't know. I mean, like you said, a lot of this is about presentation and kind of the optics of motivation and, how you can do it, but you know, my initial reaction to that is like, well, this is this is just smoke and mirrors. Like nothing has changed. This is so this here, is dumb. If you, if, fundamentally, if you presented that way for the entire like season, if that's just how the way you run things 
always with your team, I could see that having an effect. But if you if you did it the initial way the previous week and then you come in like, all right, well, today this is going to be this radical new drill and let me lay it out. And it's just the exact same thing except with negative points. People are just going to be like, what is this? Like, this is the exact same thing with negative points. I, I don't I'm just going to treat this the exact same as I treated the other drill. So, so I think there's maybe value in it, but you would have to fully commit to this over time. This couldn't be like a one time thing. So one of the things that I would argue with respect to doing this all the time, I think that if you were to do this all the time, I would actually argue there's more of a desensitization curve that might come into play where the impact of the but, sudden uh, jarringness of the fact, it's like, wait, we're taking points away. I'm starting with points and now you're taking them away from me. I don't want you to take them away from me. And that's the motivating fa factor instead of the drive to win. Here's what I'll say. I think that if you do that all the time, people get used to it and then they treat it as something that is just the same as anything else. I think if you intersperse this with the standard methodology, but it, but it is the same. It draws. Yes, but it is the same for somebody that is looking at it analytically. Like you and I, when we look at a $50 bill that can be taken or given away empirically from a purely mathematical standpoint, we say it's the same amount of money. But when you are, involved in an activity and i haven't done this i admittedly i haven't tried this it's very hand wavy i think there are ways you can spin this such that the prospect of having something yanked from you can be can be impactful and here's how i think they would play okay. out the exercise because think but, about it will you're a very smart guy you were a good soccer player back in your day now you're a little lazier in terms of you know your work ethic on the field and you know you only do and, bicycle kicks and off it don't worry I'm consistent. <laughs> but but you're a smart person who might look at this and be like yeah it doesn't work but a lot of players maybe wouldn't have the same degree of yeah and that's you know, that's why i put that disclaimer like your players would have to be like you know on top of it but I just, are your here, players on top of it? You, we went, you and I both went to a school that is well known for having a lot of very smart kids, right? The yeah. players that we coached back in high school were all very smart kids for the most part. Yeah. Those kids, when they did Rondo at the beginning of training, were they really on top of it? Ever? No, but no, I, I think, I think if you had tried to do this, there's, there would definitely be at least one kid. It might've even been me. It would have been just like, what is this? Like, this is just the exact same. And I think, I think the core of this problem, as you said, again, like, yes, the taking the $50 and losing the $50 are empirically the same, but in actual life, they're not, right? But with this, it's like finishing a drill on zero points and negative 10 points. If you're still last, if you're still at the bottom, it, they, they are actually the same. Like, there's, there's nothing the, of value. Fundamentally, and, and correct. I think for this, for this to work, this loss aversion thing. I mean, you need to be able to make players lose something that actually matters. And, you know, arbitrary points are not that. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if I'd say it's a shame because like, I, I want to be nice to my players. But, like if you were allowed to like actually take things from players that mattered, like if you could, <laughs> if you could, if you could pull up to the man city training thing and like, all right, like if no, you, no Lambo. If you, mess, if you mess up in this drill, I am taking your car keys. <laughs> oh my god i mean i i can't even imagine the kind of fighting for their you lives that. Right, okay. but you can't do that so, so instead, what you're saying if you, with, if you do it with points i just don't know how much value there is there because so again, what you're like saying said, is excellent they're not worth anything at the end of the day sure right it's just it's just scorekeeping you you lost either way it doesn't matter if you lost with negative points or zero so i'm gonna say first and foremost since we've gotten a little sidetracked, but in the right direction, believe it or not, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but you'll understand shortly. I'm going to explain how I think that might impact the activity. If people were responding to this as humans would, which is 
based on pure rationality. Humans are irrational beings. A lot of economics is founded on the idea that we are all these assumptions can be made assuming that that you know markets are efficient and that we are all rational and whatever but fundamentally humans are not rational you look at two things that are the same and you see biases the reason these are you know these are problems these are cognitive biases and deficiencies is because we look at things and we can't compute them because there's weird things that go on in our brain that don't make us rational so as somebody who isn't just looking at this like oh well uh Minus one point is the same as adding a point. What I'm saying is, I, I don't think you we need were, that voice for a minus <laughs> one point is the same as adding one point. That's a very <laughs> basic level criticism of this. Uh, my my point here like is this: I think too that far let's say process. let's uh, say uh, I am a a player involved in this rondo, and I go into the activity right, and I have a certain number of points. Okay. And I don't want to lose them because I don't want to lose. And if I lose, maybe there's sprints at the end of practice. And I had a pizza before training. And frankly, I'm going to probably throw up if I run a little bit extra. So I'm fighting for my life here. What I think this does is instead of, I think it, it, it incentivizes the defending to be really, really valiant. So I think the prospect of the defender suddenly losing something instead of the attackers gaining something makes those fewer players fight for it harder. And when the defense fights harder, the attack is forced to straighten out in a different way than if the attack is just like, yeah, we just got to training. Ah, we might, we'll, oh, knock the ball around. Oh, mega guy. Ha ha, laugh, whatever. Now suddenly the defenders are actually trying hard. And if you get the defenders trying hard, now it's like, okay, do you guys want to lose the ball every three passes or do you want to actually try to make this work? And so it kind of takes the drill and it flips it inside out and it kind of pushes it from the other angle. And I understand that there's a little bit of abstract stuff here. And yeah, the point that you brought up just now, the point you just brought up, Again, you've been killing it this episode, frankly, with all of these counter arguments. You brought up the idea that you have to take something away that is of value. That is something that is actually baked into the research. So people have talked about how loss aversion, the reason that we are motivated to make these stupid decisions with money is because the money is money that we've earned theoretically and we don't want to lose it, right? So one of the propositions I would have that maybe gets us closer, but you'll still probably dislike, is this idea that you could oscillate between giving points and taking points over the course of your sessions and not within a session, but let's say hypothetically you were to train five days a week and do mm -hmm. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you were to have games on the weekend, like most clubs, uh, not, you know, youth clubs, but higher top level clubs. Um, and you were to say Monday, Wednesday, Friday are your opportunities to win points and you keep track of them. Again, this suddenly gets into some added calculus. There's a lot of stuff. When I was, when I played, when I was a youth player, if you could even call me that, I had a coach that was the best coach that I had aside from your, your and my mentor that we worked with, with through coaching yeah. with, with that coach in particular, one thing that happened is we had a year or two where he tallied everything that happened in every training. So every single player was documented. The team they were on, if they won a certain mini game, they got a certain number of, they got a point, whatever. And it was published to the players, to the parents. And the whole thing was the top 11 performers, so long as they matched the positions we had, would be the starters on the weekend. Okay. And it was just an interesting experimental thing. And it yeah. was an effort to just be like, you need to try in training because even if you're the best player and you don't come to training and put, you know, put the effort in, you're not going to start and you want to start. So you're going to want to win games. And it was an interesting concept. And I'll never forget that because it was the type of thing that suddenly I don't think I would have either. That's really cool. Yeah. It made training a lot more intense, something that a lot of parents didn't like. And a lot of players themselves probably didn't like either because suddenly now everybody was trying really hard. And then, you know, you got put on a bad team for an entire training and now suddenly you're getting punished because all your supporting cast isn't as good as you want. There were all these things, all these conversations, but it intellectually it was an interesting idea. 
And so one of the things that I thought about is let's say you were to implement something like that, but instead you do Mondays, you win points, Tuesday, you lose them. Wednesday, you gain points, Thursday, you lose them, Friday, you gain points. And then the, at the end, you have some sort of whatever resolution, however you want to do it, whether that be starting, whether that be fitness, whether that be extra other things, onus, picking up stuff around the training session. Here now, you have an environment in which you yourself are earning the points. You go Monday, you won two games. Now you don't want to lose those points because they're valuable and you actually fought for them. They weren't just given to you as a pile of five points, right? You had to fight for those carrots. Now you don't want to give your carrot to somebody else because screw you, it's my carrot. And so you're persuaded by the laws of loss aversion in some sense here. And maybe now the idea takes on a fuller form where you're giving a little bit of diversity in the terms in, in the ways in which you incentivize to keep things spicy for the players, keep things different. You're not doing the same mm-hmm. thing every single time. And yeah. that novelty can help when you're trying to teach a concept that's maybe difficult or you're trying to get the team engaged in something. If it's a little bit different, it can make all the difference. And you've got the element to some extent, like you'd mentioned, you can't go up to the player and say, listen, I'm going to take away your textbooks and you're not going to be able to study tonight into your homework, because if anything, that might actually motivate them to lose. What you can do is you can allow them to win things and then take them away. What do you think of that? Okay. Um, I like that. I like that you can allow them to win things and then take them away. But I think um, if you're, you're describing this, right, this would be the sort of thing where you, you win points on a Monday and then you come to a practice on Tuesday and you stand to lose the points that you had gained the previous day. And they're cumulative for the week. Let's say hypothetically. Now here, here's what scares me about this idea. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say, let's say I have a horrible day on Monday. I win zero yep. points. I mm-hmm. come to practice on Tuesday. What, what am I doing? I have no motivation either way. I have nothing to win. I have nothing to lose. Uh, that, that's that could be kind of tough. That is a that is a that is a hole in in this scheme. You are absolutely yeah. correct. But I think in general, it's interesting, and. Um, you know, I, I guess having having those points kind of so hard baked into not just like the individual drills, but into the culture of the team and the stuff that you're doing in between, that gives them more value. Um, but again, I think I think it could lead to, you know, some difficulties like you mentioned with players being unhappy with how the points are getting given out for drills and stuff and just kind of, um, yeah, it's it would be a lot of complications. But I think it does have the potential to work. And I think, you know, that's closer, much, much closer than the other stuff to actually starting to have some real effect. These points are starting to feel more tangible. But I think, you know, on some degree, that's always going to be something to struggle with. Because, I mean, you, the players don't come to a soccer practice, like, with anything, right? And you're hoping that they'll leave it with more knowledge, more skill than what they started. You're hoping they'll gain something during it. But there's, there's really nothing a player can lose during the practices, Right, and there's there's really nothing you can take away from them for the score of these drills. So it, when I when I think about this idea of loss aversion and think about like what is actually valuable that we can make the players lose, I don't I don't think it can be found in this t- sort of like scoring thing. I think it's just it's all just a bit too hand wavy. And if it's not, then you know if you're actually making like serious lineup decisions based on like random selected drills and you know, where you might not have the best teammates, then that's maybe not good for other reasons. But what if instead you, you look at the loss aversion and instead of trying to bring it into the scoring, you try and bring it into the actual drills itself and see how it works as a motivator for that. So my, my kind of concept of this 
is instead of like losing points and like things that are going to affect you at the end of the drill, what if, you know, during the drill, we bake in this loss aversion concepts where, you know, if you do badly, it gets harder for you. So something like, you know, a possession game, like a just not, not a rondo, but like a, a simple like 5v5 possession or something with some kind of basic rule set. But here, instead of like gaining a point for completing a certain amount of passes, what if I what if I just introduce this absolutely brutal rule? Like if you lose the ball, you're out. You have to go sit out the rest of the drill until everyone else is done. Like that's that's some serious loss. Yeah, it's loss for the person who has to sit out. It's loss for the teammates. That's that's something that I think feels a bit more concrete in the moment. Something I'd expect. I mean, if I put that rule out, I would absolutely expect my players to be more cautious with the ball. Um, you know, be a bit more careful in the decision making than they would otherwise. <clears throat> if I had, uh, you know, just offered to give them a point for completing ten passes. Yeah. So, so this is very interesting direction we're taking this because I think there's a couple of things that I see about this that are positive, and a couple that I I think, and perhaps it's finally my chance to also disagree. Yeah. Right, I think. I think that this is very this is very interesting. I think one of the things that you have to be wary of, I think you had touched upon this before we even get into this, is this idea of like negativity bias just generally, right? Like you do not want the players coming to practice being like, oh mom, I already I'm at zero points for the week anyway. So I'm just gonna go like break people's legs today because I'm I, I can only get more and more yeah. zeros, you know. Oh, you don't course, want that yeah. because that, that might pr- cause some problems. And also yeah, if you, you have you- players that are, you know, excited to come on Monday because they get to win and then they're like sad and scared to come on Tuesday because they have to lose, that could be a problem. I I think one of the things that you've mentioned that's interesting, and I think goes back to our, you know, the role play when you, when you design a drill, you want to think about how will this actually run and just imagine how the ball can transition through the game. If you think about the game that you just mentioned, there's some real value there because the minutes, the time that you spend in the session is fun. It's entertaining. It's stuff that you don't want to lose. You don't want to get brought out. You you know, you're going to protect the ball at all costs in that game. The question becomes, how can you implement that to actually elicit behaviors that are going to be useful? Because I would argue that a lot of people would say that maybe cautious play isn't what a lot of teams are looking for. They are looking for the players that are going to take risks that maybe instead of, you know, never I, taking I risks, maybe. Well, okay. Yeah. Go the, ahead. The, basically just the idea that like, maybe you want to teach players how to take risks, but then just respond really quickly. If it doesn't work, there's different angles to this. Yeah. But what I do think is could be an example of something super valuable. What is the one moment in a game where you never want to take risks and you only want to just protect the ball at all costs and never lose it? Um, what, what do you mean? The one moment is late in a match in a significant yeah. game. Okay. You're holding on to a lead. You're yeah, holding sure. on to corner, a draw. Corner flag, for corner flag, wasting time or whatever. Yeah. So here's an example where I think this concept can actually be super, super well utilized. Because if I, one of the things I feel like I always see is there never seems to be teams that are just like really good at keeping the ball late in the game, except for like, I don't know, I think England did it at one point in the, in the Euros, where for the last like five minutes, they just danced around the opponent and they did it pretty daringly. They didn't just like go and like did gamesmanship by the corner flag. But that is an example of something where it's like, listen, we're going to go play a tournament. Let's say, you know, like the team that I used to work with at Michigan, we're going to go play a national tournament. There are going to be moments that are unorthodox that aren't real soccer. They are weird, different moments in which dynamics are going to unfold differently. We want to train that. I think your idea is fascinating for that specific use case where it's like, if you lose the ball in this drill, you got to sit out. You're going to make it a real pain for your team. Because as we discussed in the episode about yellow cards, do yellow cards really work? 
we've talked about how red cards are a serious punishment. The reason red cards are in the game is because going down 10 to 11 is a huge, huge thing that can sway the tide. The whole game of soccer, all yeah. the people online are talking about finding the free man. Finding the free man is hard to do because you have equal numbers. As soon as you have not equal numbers, there is a literally always a free man. It doesn't even yeah. matter how perfect the marking is. And so if you were to take a game and say there were 4v4 and you were to suddenly make it 3v4, now know, and that's really, really bad. That's something I really like about this too. Is um, if you get down to like forty-three, but imagine if you're doing this like with with seven players or something, and like that first loss is a lot less important than the ones at the end. So it would introduce this inter interesting dynamic where like the team that's behind is always playing for more, like not not just because of some scoring system, but because of actually what is affecting the game. And like they know, like if we go down, if we go down from four to three, like this is just over. Like we got. We I like got that actually because. I worry that this is the type of thing that is like so exponential that it would just die off really fast. You know, like suddenly you go down to six, you go down to five, you go down to four, and then it's just like, oh, well, the first team to really get the first one is really what makes the tide change. But if you have, if you have three excellent players fully motivated, they can keep the ball against more numbers. No question. That's reasonable. Yeah, yeah that's reasonable. I and think you know, I've thought I, about I, this. I like, I like what you touched ahead. on. With, yeah, this isn't, you know, the perfect thing for, you know, encouraging risk taking and stuff. And I, I, I understand that. And this would be, you know, I, I coach in an age where players are, you know, will only take risks and haven't learned to like be patient with the ball yet. So I think it, through that lens, it would be good. But yes, you're right. That is a big problem with this. And, you know, it'd be something that have to be framed as like, this is like only for build up play. Like, this is just like when we're bringing out of the back, you can't lose these balls, but you know, take your risks other places, but yeah. I think it's an excellent concept. And again, these things are half-baked, right? We're having the discussion because these are things yeah. we're thinking about and trying to push the discourse on. I think one one concept I've, talked to, I've thought about a lot and I've had on the corkboard for a piece for a long time is like how to teach the teams to, to pump the brakes and basically once to, to stop a landslide, right? You're in a big game, big, big circumstances, and you go down a goal. How do you avoid not going down a second and a third, especially, and I know we talked a lot in these last 10, 11, 12 episodes about the whole away goals thing, but that was so important back then. When you had away goals, it was like, if you go down a goal in certain circumstances, it's like, it's okay. Just don't go down two. Don't go down three. Don't go yeah. down four. Trust me. I, I know I, what that feels like. I'd really like to do an episode. I think what, what always really interests me is, I mean, not even going like a goal down, but I there's just such a variety of responses like in these games, especially as like, it's a big team against a small team and like the big team like gets too early goals. It's just like uh, such an interesting dynamic of like a lot of managers will just like be like damage control. Like we got to just sit everyone behind the bus and make sure they don't score more. And it's like, is that, is that the best approach to take? Like is goal difference is like losing your goal difference, have a higher chance of screwing you over long-term than just like not even trying to get something out of this game. Maybe. I, mean, I don't know. I, Clearly, they I think, think so. I think we've stumbled on another example of loss aversion, believe it or not. Actually, in those specific circumstances with those double like double fixtures, that loss aversion thing comes is invoked all the time. It's this fear of like, oh, God, well, we can't we certainly can't do we can't have worse than this. So you make all these rapid adjustments. You know, you sign Ibrahima Konate because right now you feel like you need defenders, but he's going to come later on anyways. And it doesn't even matter because the game's over. And you've already lost, and that, that, then you lost your chance to get the away goal. Yeah. And so I think fundamentally, one thing I thought about too is like along the same lines of what you've mentioned. This is kind of departing a little bit, but it's like what that's if, what we instance, need. If that's you, good. More tangents. If, if you wanted, if you wanted to teach teams 
to be able to go down one goal and hold it there and be able to lose a game zero to one in order to get through the next round. If that is something that you actually want to instill in your team, which could be valuable in certain situations. Like speaking of which, Martin, when, when can we actually do your episode on like losing to win or because we were supposed to do that. Like right at the start, and I still have so much to say about all that stuff. We can bring that in. We have a okay. Well, what I'll say is because we are getting towards the end of this, we have a super exciting episode coming up next week. I'm very oh, excited yeah? about. It's going to be a big surprise. What? But Ooh, you, okay. you, do, you, do know, know you know, you know. Yes, yes, yes. You know about okay, this. I do know about it. All right. Um, good. Just you guys but, don't bunch of idiots. <laughs> this is. Um, you're going to reward. You're going to negatively punish the listener that has worked through our entire episode by calling them an idiot I'm, at this stage of the podcast. Honest, okay, look, if you are still listening to this podcast, you are an idiot. There's, there's no two <laughs> ways Like, go, go do something. Come on. Uh, so, my, but my point is, we can do, honestly, let's line that one up. We can do losing to win. I have a whole article on why losing can pave the way to winning or why, I don't even remember what I called it, why, yeah. why you should lose on purpose because it'll help you win. Yeah, I, I think my great idea really my really my, my additional my, my concept here right is like let's say hypothetically you're going into a game let's say you're psg going into la remontada the game that didn't have to be la remontada if you didn't let it happen and you're like okay barcelona has all these players they're really talented they're going to score on us but if we only lose two nothing we still go through you might design a game plan to do that in that circumstance as backwards as that seems yeah and so the question is how do you go down two goals and not go down six one concept in the way in which you craft this artful incentivization piece, you could say, for instance, you could do training drills that week that say, if you go, if you get a goal scored against you, it's worth one point. If the second comes, that one's worth two. If they score three, it's worth three. And Ooh. you can ramp okay. exponentially the yeah. pain of, yeah. of, of, sorry, yes. Well, if you're adding, oh, I'm going to really embarrass myself here. Let's move past it. Let's move past it. It grows. The pain grows with each step. It's not that you're just, because you, let's say you go down one goal, it's one zero. Two goals, instead of being two zero, it's now three zero. Three goals is six zero. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Uh, my, in any case, whatever uh, growth that pattern that is, my point is if you make it worse, if you ramp it in some way in which the punishment gets worse and worse, I think if I'm a player and we go down one goal, it's like, fellas, let's not do this again. And it might instill a certain mentality of, fellas, let's not do this again. And it might get you across the line. And it kind of borrows from what you've just mentioned, this idea that if you lose one player, then you lose two players. Losing two players is way worse than losing one. You could make this even more disastrous by doing one player, then two players, then three players, but then the game just disappears, right? Yeah, that would get bad pretty quickly. You'd have to start with like 20 on a side or something to get much use out of that. And in any case, once it gets bad, it's going to disappear in an instant. But the the fun thing about all of this, I I, I think maybe we can finish off with your thoughts on referees, because I know you you mentioned something about that earlier. That's not that important. We can just... (laughs) Then we can skip it. So... I think the the important thing that I want to touch upon here is that drill design is an art. Just like I've put out 35,000 words on how I would design drills, in one conversation with you, William, I have realized that one of my favorite ones that I put together that I spent hours thinking about and discussing different nuances, we talk, uh, the position of the goals, the tapering of the pitch, of the, of the cones, 
the scoring things in one brief conversation, you've already looked at me and said, you know what? I would do something differently. And I think that is so important to hold on to because in the world of sharing opinions and telling people what to do and promoting ideas like their facts and going online and saying, this is how you do this. And, and people that arrogantly say, this is the practical guide to actually understanding positional play in the world in which that exists. Who, who are you? Honestly, <laughs> In, in a world in which that exists, it is so important to remember that there are so many different ways to do this. This isn't art. Yeah. This isn't a science. There's sports science everywhere in this. There's people that have studied things that have added, they have put data into this. They have shown trends and correlations and causations in some cases. But even with all of that, this is fundamentally an art. Coaching is an art. The yeah. Drill design is an art. We each are allowed to interpret the game itself in our own individual ways. And we are all allowed to interpret the way that we want to coach, the way that we want to teach things in our own different ways. Because I think just like I might've been able to create something that might work with some concept, you would do it entirely differently. And our players would be different. Our performance environments would be different. And we Maybe they're equally successful. Yeah. Who knows? And you know, you look look at the teams that are successful right now. There's a massive variety of styles of, of coaches, of the way teams are playing. You go back five, ten years. There's even more. So to to say there's a right way to do anything that's not just like incredibly granular, granular, just like this is how you take a touch of the outside of your foot. It's it's ridiculous, right? And yeah, I don't know. Incentivization is also something you can do in a load of different ways and can be very effective so maybe that's the takeaway it's just like disregard everything we've said form your own opinions and i yeah. think that's a that's quite the that's a mighty takeaway because that's good well i'm glad we didn't spend too much time saying stuff in this episode at least then if we're just gonna tell everyone to disregard it <laughs> take the last three hours of your day and delete it just delete yeah. it out of your brain goldfish in the trash yep. <laughs> i think that Frankly, I agree with you. I think the thing that I concluded, this is a spoiler of my own piece that I wrote, but at the end of the 35,000 words, the thing that I kind of concluded with was a wrap up explaining all the things that we'd walked through. But then I also said, fundamentally, this is how I am doing this today. I am not you and I am not even me tomorrow. I could think about the way that I do these things in one day's time, as is evident, here I am thinking about this one day later with a drastically different approach to one of the pieces, one of the cornerstones of this entire piece. And I'm already changing my, my thinking. And so if anything, what I hope people get from that, from that, from this conversation, from all the conversations we have is not any sort of answer. There's no answer here. We're not giving answers. We're taking something that could be interesting, that could push a narrative, that could be changing the conversation, and we're exploring it. And we're looking yeah. into it, and we're trying to figure out, is there is there value here? Are there pitfalls? You know, there will never be a shortage of that. Typically, when there's a new idea that people haven't already imp implemented extensively, there's going to be reasons why it hasn't been implemented extensively. But fundamentally, you that that curiosity is so important. I, I I could not have enjoyed today's conversation more. I know that we had some internet troubles halfway through that hopefully we'll edit out. We had a very belligerent cursing first half that was super long, and we talked way too much about Divakarigi. But at the end of the day, the important thing is that if you see something that you think has value, explore it. If you have somebody that's going to challenge the way that you think and push you and disagree with you, like Will, you have done for me today. Just start a podcast with them. 
start a podcast with them hold on tight to that type of thing because those yeah. people that will disagree with you are valuable you need those types of things if you're surrounded by yes men you're going to be like me and publish a massive piece you spent three months on and the next day someone's going to tell you you know what martine you're kind of an idiot yeah and yeah, it's better it. to hear that it's better to hear that earlier than it is to hear it too late so Aww. i don't know that's that's no, all that's... i have today i am i have no. poured Oh, well, it's Everything. not all we have. Uh, before you go, I'm I'm not looking through this for a teaser. So I just want you to say the wild that you can think of right now. <laughs> we'll throw it in. <laughs> oh, oh. <coughs> welcome to Touchline Theory. Uh, okay, I'm going to cut out a welcome to Touchline Theory. We're just going to keep the coughs. That's perfect. All right. It, no one will understand that unless you somehow made it all the way here i'm i'm so sorry guys listen i try, I'm, I try I'm to delighted. keep him under control but he just I'm, keeps I'm, on talking if there's anybody that is actually still listening to this uh thank you so much genuinely um yeah this is f- kind of fun for us you know will will's been trying to hop off the podcast for the last two hours but yeah i, I have been i won't lie but um, if if you're still here thank you um i'm glad that you chose to listen to two idiots talk about some pretty idiotic things what, but what did we talk about today i hope that you enjoyed some portion of it um maybe the beginning yeah. more than the second part maybe you actually like the second part more than the first no, i mean i think i think it was good all the way through i think we did we did fine with the second part it was uh you know we got through some good points it's just you know it's long it's like Two and a half hours. I, I don't know if I'd watch a movie that was that long, Martin. Yeah, no, you and I are not going to listen to this, either of us, whatsoever, yeah. are we? Uh, probably not. What I will finish things off by saying is that regardless of how much of a uh, ballad of a audio experience this has been, I will say that next week we have quite the thing prepared for you. I'm super excited. Nice. We have our first guest coming onto the podcast. Um, I thought that was going to be a surprise. <laughs> Uh, the person himself is going to be a surprise, oh, it's a delightful okay. surprise. But we do have our first guest coming out of the podcast. Um, this is going to be fantastic. Let me tell you, we are going to be talking about a topic that, frankly, neither Will nor I knows really anything about. If I'm yeah. going to so be that's, totally that's honest a with big, you, that's a big change from what we normally do on this. We're <laughs> usually bringing so much knowledge to the table, and now we're going to come in empty-handed. You'll, you'll is, adapt, I'm sure. You'll get used to it after that initial shock. This is going to be the type of thing where we, Will and I are going to be all ears and we're going to be here to learn from somebody who is super intelligent, super experienced, very young. Um, mm. And they're going to teach us a couple of things uh, that we probably had no idea about with regard to goalkeepers. So with that, William... Till next time. Till next time.